Okay, this is McLoon on Maui, number six, our simulation of the uh, Monday night colloquia or meetings at Marsh McLuhan's coach house in the 60s and 70s, and uh, the date is April 4th, 2011, and we're going to begin by calling, by talking to Scott Taylor, who's in Toronto, but the setup is I now have to call him, so... Just hold a second, and I'll bring him in. Okay, Sheila, you there? Yes, I'm here. And 8-Bit. Anybody else bling in? Didn't hear any more rings. I'm here, Bob. Okay, good. You're on mute at the beach in Brooklyn. That's 8-Bit. Right. Okay, there's two, two ways to introduce Scott, F. Scott Taylor, but known as Scott Taylor. Um, it says here on an old long-time website called CyberStage, says, who is F. Scott Taylor? Among the few chosen students of Marsha McLuhan was F. Scott Taylor, now modern-day cultural cr critic. Uh, who fell out? Maybe somebody came in. No, no, that's the falling out, so at least it wasn't Scott. Okay. No. All right. Among the few chosen students of Marsha McLuhan was F. Scott Taylor, now modern-day cultural critic, and Technological Watchdog, and this is written 20 years ago. Scott Taylor was McLuhan's last graduate student, graduating just before McLuhan's retirement, that would be in 1976, and eventual death in 1980. Specializing in critical thinking about the social consequences of virtual reality, Taylor now continues his work in the tradition of McLuhan. Thought-provoking, timely, complex, and intellectually ahead of their time, Taylor's essays illuminates and clarifies our steamrolling direction with our new toys. Listen to Scott Taylor, and there's a collection of his essays 20 years ago called Taylor's Tirades, The Tetrads of Marshall McLuhan's Last Student. Anybody want to announce themselves there if they don't want to be anonymous? It's still 8-bit. I just got disconnected. I called back. Okay. Now, a more recent uh, little obit, uh, bio of, uh, obituary and bio of, <laughs> of Scott Taylor is... He is a media arts critic and playwright who has written extensively on the psychophysiological affects, or affects, that's A-F-F-E-C-T rather than effects, right. on the psychophysiological affects of telecommunications and technoculture. I remember uh, Donald Thiel talking about no one discussed affects. It was all effects, but no one ever dealt with affects, and he tried to right. bring that in. So Scott is really emphasizing the Little discursed affect. How is it affect? It's affect, A F F E C T. And that can be thought of in terms of um, uh, William James's uh, ideas of it, uh, in terms of um, uh, fringe awareness. Right. Uh, 
Let me just finish this. Sure. Fringe awareness. Uh, we're great fans here of Fringe, the TV show. Taylor's work has embraced many disciplines, and he's known for his theatrical multimedia performance pieces, some of which have been produced across North America and Europe, as well as at the Edinburgh Festival and Pompidou Center. At the moment, he serves on the executive of the Subtle Technology Festival, which I know you just stepped down from that role, right? That's right. Yeah. And is completing a book called The Dismantled Mouth of Social Autism. So autism is probably the theme that connects Scott's work 20 years ago, maybe even to the 80s, to today. But he has a new twist uh, in developing that. And, and Scott is very intrigued about the, uh, the hyper-autism today among the uh, who's ever using this hypermedia, maybe it's the younger people, he would say. So we're going to move towards that. Uh, for me, Scott, um, I heard him on CBC in 1975 or so. Uh, he was the first time I ever heard of um, a student in McLuhan's graduate program who uh, was hanging out with McLuhan, liked McLuhan, became a friend. And I always wanted to meet him, and I didn't get to meet him until, gee, you're talking 25 years later, 30, 35 years later, something like that. But uh, so we're really happy to have Scott here and Andrew Crystal, who's a bit late right now, but he should be uh, dropping at any moment once he finishes his uh, teacher duties. Um, Scott uh, is um, someone that Andrew really respects his writings, and Michael Edmonds, who was the assistant director at the Coach House in the uh, last 10 years, uh, he respects Scott, Scott's writing. So I find people that respect me respect um, Scott's writings, and so uh, there's a potential mutual collaboration in some way. Uh, let's see who this is. Who just joined in? If they don't speak, then it's Brian. He, remain, he wants to remain anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I assume that's Brian if they're not identifying themselves. All oh, right. I just, so, I just logged on. Oh, it's Michael Evans. You came in right as I was introducing. Hey, hi, Michael. It's Scott here. Hey, hi, Scott. Sorry I'm late. Okay, so it's all right. Andrew's late, too. Um, have I said everything? I think so. So uh, what's, I'm what, what's Michael's last name? Edmund. 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 With a U. He was a guest about three or four sections ago. He gave the history of Marshall in the 70s when he was a student. Did you hear that one, Sheila? I think I might have missed that one. Okay, you may have. I don't think you were there. Yeah, that so was, the, yes, I, I did. Yeah. Now, now Scott well, that's has regrettable. listened. <laughs> what did you say? I said that's regrettable, but uh, right. we'll make Scott up for it tonight. Well, is it is it archived, uh, Bobby? Yeah, all all five previous sessions are archived at the McLuhanConference.blogspot.com site. Now the um, we interviewed George Thompson, 94 years old, assistant for McLuhan in this key period in the 70s, and uh, Scott ha actually heard the George Thompson interview, brought a lot of memories back for him. Plus, there was much that Scott would parallel to what George said. The main point I got from Scott when I first met him is that the intellectual developments, the uh, situation at the university for McClone in relation to the various faculties uh, was really different from the 60s. And uh, Scott is going to uh, begin, I hope, with some stories about the milieu there. Scott, 
You show up in um, 72 or 73? No, 70, 74 was uh, the first time that I was involved uh, directly with McLuhan. Okay. Uh, we'll go into the background a little later about how you got there, but just spark us with a, an anecdote about what you remember at that point. He was just releasing the Tetrad. I was there in 74, dropped in. and I remember, Do you remember the little sheet he handed out? the explanation of the tetrad and the, one of the first tetrads was the law of etherealization. Do you remember that particular sheet? No, I, I'm sorry, I don't. Oh, it's all right. That was already, um, I, 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 I really wasn't too, uh, too savvy when it came to a lot of uh, McLuhan's ideas, although uh, I had read the Gutenberg Galaxy uh, in 1964 when I was, uh, was 14 years old. Um, no, when uh, I the first time I went to see McLuhan, um, uh, he he had read an article that I had written in White Pelican, which is a literary pamphlet out of um, uh, Edmonton uh, from Sheila and Wilford Watson, and um, and he had uh, asked if I would come out and uh, work with him. And uh, it wasn't clear whether the uh, university would accept me into the graduate program or not. And uh, I uh, uh, hightailed it out to uh, Toronto to, uh, even though I was late in my application, uh, to see if I couldn't uh, couldn't uh, get into the, the the program. And I was very dismayed to find out uh, immediately from the registrar and in the English department that um, they didn't give uh, McLuhan any kind of um, uh, leverage or ability to to determine who would uh, be in the graduate program, even though he had agreed to to um, supervise uh, my uh, my program. And um, so that that was that was very sad. Uh, so that I was immediately introduced uh, to the kinds of um, political problems that were uh, surrounding McLuhan at, at the time. Uh, the first time I went to um, the Center for uh, Culture and Technology or the coach house that was there uh, was a really rainy uh, morning, and uh, I uh, wasn't sure uh, how to get there. And um, I was walking beside Victoria College in Queens Park Crescent there, and um, I saw a gentleman, uh, and I didn't know who it was, but I went up to him and I asked um, where the coach house was, if he knew and could direct me. And it turned out that it was Harley Parker, and he was all dressed up. Uh, Harley Parker, of course, had uh, written uh, a book with McLuhan called Through the Vanishing Point. And he was all dressed up. He had a, a suit on, a gray suit with a purple vest. I was always very dapper. He said that he was going right there, and so um, uh, he ushered me um, uh, down the paths to uh, the coach house. Uh, then when I first uh, saw McLuhan, um, uh, you know, he asked why I had come, and I, you know, blurted out that the, that that I had read uh, his work when I was 14, and nobody had made any sense to me uh, 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 before I had read that. And McLuhan laughed like, "Oh, get out!" Uh, he thought it was very funny that there's this young man who, at 14, had thought that he'd made sense. So I don't remember that conversation, but um, at one point when he was take me or not, he took me over to um, the, uh, the window in, um, uh, in, in the upper uh, chamber, his upper office in the coach house, and he pointed out a man uh, who was uh, 
uh, mowing the lawn, uh, a maintenance worker out there. He said, well, Scott, usually what I uh, say uh, to uh, young men who come uh, seeking my help uh, is uh, I I point out uh, uh, people like uh, this gentleman here working on the lawn, and I say, that's where it's at. Uh, Go to it. (laughs) In other words, he was saying he usually sends them away. Uh, But he said, well, maybe in your case, maybe we can do uh, something about it. And so I because because you're coming from Sheila Watson, who yeah. is his dear friend and closest colleague on the humanities or literary level, probably, as shown by the letters with Sheila, the one he could talk about finding his way in that. So he is he's interested. You have a little bit of an advantage coming from Sheila, right? I had uh, quite an advantage, I think, coming from Sheila uh, when uh, McLuhan had had his um, first major stroke. Uh, uh, Sheila, who was uh, a graduate student of his, working, who she did her doctorate under his supervision, a doctorate on Wyndham Lewis. Um, she had been his uh, amanuensis and had uh, been his memory, and had helped him uh, uh, refurbish uh, all that he had had lost. You're talking about in 1959-60 that problem. Um, uh, whenever the first time he had a major stroke. Yeah. Well, in 1960, he was ill, and would Sheila have ba- helped uh, Corinne at that point, family friend? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, she was almost like an aunt to the kids, right? That's right. And uh, her husband, Wilfred, of course, had uh, worked with McLuhan on uh, from cliché to archetype. And he had the Governor General Award about 1955 for poetry. Yes, that's right. Uh, he uh, won the Governor's General Award in Poetry for his first book of poetry, uh, which was called Friday's Child. And it had been um, edited by T.S. Eliot, and it had been published by Faber and Faber. Mm. So it was quite a, a, a cause celebre. So I remember going to a lecture, a public lecture, about 1971, maybe at St. Mike's. It was a low-key thing. At, before or after the thing, I saw and heard McClone complaining to his agent that there was no publicity or to the university person responsible. But what struck me, I didn't know this, is that he was, he was doing a lecture. He had his Elliot and Joyce taxi laid out on the table. But behind him was the picture, I think, of the window you look out onto the parking lot at the coach house. He had that picture there. And like to, Back then, a nondescript, nothing picture of a view probably from his office, sounds like the window you looked out. With yeah, him. that would be it. That's pretty interesting. That That is, because it was a professorial talk. He was going and quoting literature and jumping around with the different books, and very interesting, different from his, uh, whatever you call the general pop culture kind of talk he might do. Um, it, was, it, was, it, was stu- it was educational or something. So that maybe, it was like he regarded us as students. <laughs> he was pointing to the uh, dead scene outside the window, but it would appear to be dead. Well, that's a wonderful story. Uh, yeah. Okay, so you, you start, you very quickly get on CBC then if you showed up in 74. Um, it, well, you know, there, there's a, quite a long story regarding uh, how I got on to CBC there. Um, and uh, uh, Take it. Go for it. Tell us. Okay. Well, um, uh, Andy Warhol was coming to town. See? See, you just have to say anything. You're going to get some new things. Andy Warhol's coming to town. 
All right. Uh, so uh, I and my friend Marie Morgan uh, thought, wouldn't it be fun to get uh, the two pop icons of the 60s together? And so uh, I telephoned McLuhan up and I said, uh, uh, how would you uh, like to meet Andy Warhol? And he said, oh, so the, the buggers are coming to town. The buggers are coming to town. <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, I guess you could say that, Dr. McLuhan. And he says, well, Andy Warhol's are a dime a dozen in New York City, but he might be worth uh, worth having something to do with here in uh, in Toronto. So he said, sure, he was game for it. Let me tell you so, something, Scott. This triggers off the LaRouche quadrant on my chart. LaRouche has done historical sourcing of Gnosticism and its homosexual variants out of the buggers in, uh, you know, Eastern Europe. You ever heard of the buggers? B-U-G-G-E? No, I, I haven't. Yeah, it's, it, it, you know, McLuhan had this sidetrack of tracking the Freemasonic conspiracy. I don't know how much he uh, really remembered any of it, but here it is. We have a quote him talking about the Freemasons in 76 or so based on uh, Terence Gordon's biography, but here in 74 or so, He's saying the buggers. That is literally what what Little Rouge by the '90s was saying that the the whole corrupt art scene in New York was was an extension of the buggers who'd been around for 600 years. Well, <laughs> That's incredible. Maybe Cool was talking technically there. I think he was actually. I do. You know, and he he he, he really enjoyed that nursery rhymery. Yes. And, okay. Uh, so he so, so he says they're dime a dozen. So what happens? So anyway, what happened is we got in touch with um, with Andy Warhol's uh, people, and uh, uh, Jackie Burroughs and Marie Morgan and I all went uh, down to... Jackie Burroughs? I saw her do a one-woman show in 80s or 90s. She became... Oh, yeah. No, she did that movie, Wander Around in Mexico. That's right. Right. See, what happened to Jackie? She still... Uh, Jackie died just a, a, a year or two ago, and it's really too bad. She was just a marvelous person, so much fun. Now, this is going to be another size. This is another level we can get in, in Scott's... T- he knows a lot of people in the art scene, so I always wondered about uh, that extension of McLuhan's. And so we will digress occasionally into these other people who Scott met. I mean, Jackie Burroughs was a, a top actress for a short while there in, in Toronto, right? Oh, for a long time. She was a staple on um, Anne of Am- Avalie, uh you know, the television, uh, yeah. the Canadian television show here. Uh, and she uh, performed along with Maggie Smith at Stratford. So how did you meet Jackie? Were, is that, is that well, when she was a nobody in the theater? Who, uh, through Kay Armitage and Leanne Taylor. Leanne Taylor was the uh, person involved with uh, the uh, video cabaret here. I know, uh, I know them. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah, the Hummer uh, Sisters. So they put on, that's right, the Hummer Sisters, they put on um, uh, uh, the Patty Rehearsed show. Yeah. And uh, So you were part of that scene, which oh, became... Well, a little bit, you know, like, yeah, a bit off as much as I could chew. Well, how did you meet those people when you're just a nobody, so to speak, from Edmonton? Were you already in touch with the theater scene? And- oh, gosh, you know, uh, I wasn't quite a nobody from Edmonton. I already knew everybody who was anybody in Edmonton because, you know, I was a real social climber and a social gadabout. And, and you met a lot of people through Wilford. I really made it. I met a lot through Shum Wilford. And uh, then um, I was uh, good friends with... Um, with uh, people who were involved with Trudeau's uh, youth think tank, 
uh, people who included Louise uh, Arbour and Larry Tamman and uh, uh, a lot of other people. And uh, so when okay. I came to Toronto, I was uh, right away pretty nicely situated uh, for for you know those kinds of social uh, digressions. Right. Were you able to discuss McLuhan's ideas with Jackie and those people and intrigue I them with it? Jackie. Um, and when I tried to with Leanne, um, uh, it didn't it didn't work very well. It didn't <laughs> go very far. Uh, they they of course were using it all, but I had you know lots of discussions with Kay Armitage, who was a part of that that scene too. So she's the only one who would listen to your McLuhan talk, you're saying. She'd dialogue about it. Yeah, well, to a large degree, uh, for people at that time uh, who were Torontonians, McLuhan was pretty old news. Right, but they didn't know the global theater idea. You see, they only might have known the global village. Oh, they weren't keeping up uh, with 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 it all that well, but a lot of them still occasionally uh, flitted in and out of the Monday night sessions. Oh, okay. Yeah, I used to see Michael wants to say something. Yeah, let me add about Kay Armitage. I think it's an interesting wrinkle is that in those years that you're talking about, Scott, Kay was uh, going out with Joe Medjic. And Joe That's Medjic, right. he, he eventually went on to work with Ivan Wright and become a big Hollywood producer type guy. But That's right. He he wrote the uh, Joe Medjic interviewed McLuhan, and um, we have that interview on a piece. That's the one that was posted in uh, in Take One. Yeah, that magazine, take, the film magazine. In Take yeah, One is where right. McLuhan said he's not going to write any more books. He's only going right. to write movies. He said he got about five or six more books to finish up, get them done in the next three weeks, and then on into other media. Yeah. So, you, so that's Joe. Joe Medjuk's interview is pretty good. Yeah, the point is you can be sure that uh, uh, Kay Armitage at that time uh, is, is, knows all about McLuhan from that angle with Joe. Yeah. V- very good. So, Bruce, yeah. you and Jackie get in touch with Warhol's people, and what happens? Well, uh, what happens is uh, they they declined uh, uh, coming and meeting McLuhan uh, simply because their time uh, didn't allow it. Uh, Andy Warhol was very gracious and very different from what I had thought that he would be like from uh, the kinds of descriptions that you hear. And uh, then did he talk? Would he politely talk? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, we we had a little bit of a, a talk there. Um, he was he was really really very nice, uh, kind of uh, kind and saintly, and and uh, and uh, you know I I really liked him. Uh, but then as I was walking out, uh, 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 I didn't realize that there was a CBC uh, reporter uh, with uh, his. Um, a camera going right behind uh, uh, Jackie and Marie and I. So I was telling them about what McLuhan had said about um, uh, about uh, Andy Warhol. And uh, so what? Uh, lo and behold, that night on CBC News, uh, there was this footage of me uh, walking with Marie and Jackie. Uh, talking about uh, uh, McLuhan, <laughs> the Buckers. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
So, well, that I guess you didn't feel very story. good, Scott. Okay, so what happens next? This was just before, uh, before Christmas. So I went off back home to Edmonton, Alberta, uh, for Christmas, and uh, then I came uh, back uh, uh, after New Year's. And McLuhan phoned me up, and he said, uh, uh, Scott, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to come over, you know, uh, for a little bit of a celebration here. So I thought, oh, that was really great. And so I went to um, to uh, his his home uh, in Witchwood, and he met me at the door. And he was uh, really especially ambassadorial, you know. He he flung the door open and greeted me just like a, a jovial character out of Dickens, and, mm. and uh, ushered me in. And then he he really poised himself around, and he went and he picked up a little envelope from on top of, of uh, a table there uh, in the front hall. And he brought it over and he says, here, Scott, I've, I've, I've uh, got a Christmas card for you. And so I, I said, oh, gosh, gee, uh, Dr. McLean, you didn't need to do that. <laughs> and <laughs> he gave me the Christmas card and I read on the, on the, uh, the, the, the envelope, uh, to Mr. Scott Tatler. <laughs> of course, I was a, I was an, I was a, uh, an 18th century scholar at that time, and so there was, of course, the Tatler, the 18th century paper. So it had that kind of, of quality to it. And uh, but it also was referring to the 20th century. Yeah. And so I said right away, you know, really abashed, oh, Doctor McLuhan, you know, you know, I'm so sorry. <laughs> And he just laughed, and he thought it was great, and uh, we went on from there. So that was the story. Inside the card, he signed it in a typical way, you know, should old Aquinas be forgot. Yes. So that, but that leads to uh, some producer getting you on uh, Sheila Rogers' show or whatever art show was on in the afternoon, right? Because well, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what happened all then, uh, how that, that worked out. Well, you were brought on to talk about Gertrude Stein. Um, uh, well, there was a number of shows that I was involved with then. At, uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, they all kind of run together in my mind. Um, at, at one point, um, oh, what's his name, that uh, famous Canadian television. Uh, Zosky? Zosky. Peter Zosky. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one time I was um, at, at standby uh uh, celebrity, I and uh, the woman who was doing um, my shows, uh, my uh, theatrical shows at the Edinburgh Festival uh, on the Zosky show, but we never made it on. Mm. You went to the green room? Um, actually, we just sat in the audience, and then if uh, if uh, the uh, who they the, who they had uh, instead were a couple of uh, prima donna ba- ballerinas, uh, Nadia Potts was on, and she, so she made it on instead of, of, of um, Nancy Cole and myself. What were, you t- what were you going to talk about? We were going to talk about um, uh, my uh, plays uh, in, um, that were being performed at the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, Nancy Cole uh, was a woman who had been uh, one of uh, Beckett's original actresses. And uh, she had done a show internationally called Gertrude Stein's Gertrude Stein. And uh, then uh, we met in Edmonton, and uh, I started writing some uh, 
some monologues for her, which developed into a series called Ladies Speak, uh, which was three monologues, and these were uh, performed at two years of Edinburgh Festival uh, pretty much around the world, and at the Pompidou Center, as well as at the Center for Culture and Technology, uh, McLuhan um, uh, became friends with Nancy Cole, and so did George Thompson. And you played, you performed it in the little coachos. Uh, she performed in the coachos. Mm. Okay, so here it, it was a big deal back then to get on TV. My first time getting on electric media was in October '84, and I really could feel the discarnate response. You know, just feel the space. Now, when you were on the radio, CBC, did you have that? See, it's rare. Most citizens couldn't get on and beat the content. And but if you did it, you could understand more what McLuhan was talking about. Did you get no, any sense of that when you did uh, the CBC? No, actually, um, the the uh, uh, Sheila Rogers was more involved with um, Nancy Cole than with me. Uh, the monologues I had written for her were produced uh, on uh, CBC audience all across Canada, and uh, and uh, so that's what that was. Yeah, actually, if I recall, there wasn't much said about uh, your life at the coach house or anything. It just was no, a passing was remark. Nothing at all. It was just a passing remark about uh, about me being mm -hmm. a student of, of, of McLuhan. What do you think of, of Marshall's statement in Counterblast that Gertrude Stein expressed was looking for the gestures underlying semantic overlay? Um, I I don't know what really to say uh, about that. Um, my thesis was called Automatic Stein, the Literature Dissociation. And Gertrude Stein was one course short of getting a medical doctorate, and most people don't realize that. And she had worked under William James as well as under one of the chief American an anatomists uh, and had uh, written uh, very, very clear-headed uh, uh, material uh, for uh, uh, medical books um, on uh, Wernicke's area uh, and uh, Broca's area in terms of anatomical dissections. And so she was extremely uh, aware of, um, of at least what was known at that time, which was really pretty advanced uh, 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 about uh, speech production. So this is this, um, this is why you get an early beat on medical research because of that aspect of, of uh, and brain well, I research? Was always, I was always um, really multidisciplinary and, uh, or even transdisciplinarian. The difference being that multidisciplinary work um, uh, really tries to see uh, what the connections are, the literal connections between analogical uh, suppositions, whereas um, the transdisciplinary brings into it uh, the spiritual uh, aspects as well. And so the idea of a continuum of spiritual energies to physical and physical to spiritual. McLuhan was more of a transdisciplinarian. Right. Um, um, and, uh, excuse oh wait, someone has to say yes. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, Scott, this is a this is a um, a thrilling kind of description that you've given here. And uh, of course, I'm just hearing you speak for the first time, so uh, I wonder if you could just go over all of that again. 
Uh, <laughs> you mean the transdisciplinary, going, the difference? Going back, going back to the diff, yeah, explaining the difference between transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary. Sure. Well, multidis- interdisciplinary is just between two different uh, disciplines. Uh, and uh, then multidisciplinary is, uh, is is really the attempt to see the more literal connections between uh, a- analogical relationships uh, between disciplines, whereas transdisciplinary brings in um, the spiritual as well, uh, so that uh, with the idea that there is a continuum of spiritual energies to physical and physical energies to spiritual, where the spiritual never leaves the physical and the physical never leaves the spiritual. Yeah, now, Scott, um, Barry Nevin made this distinction. The generalist uh, is a special um, expert on different literary subjects, a Gutenberg person. But Barry said he and McClune were multi, I think it was multi- Generalists, multi pointing out that it was cross cultures and cross media, not within the what is written in books. So it sounds like the uh, multidisciplinary is a literary encyclopedism, but transdisciplinary gets into totally different modalities of perception. Yeah, you could you could look at it uh, that way for sure. And you know, I've tried as hard as I could to research um, the differences in mentalities between one language group and another language group, and there's just so little work done on it uh, that it's, it's, it's really, really very disappointing. Um, although, um, if you just follow in, um, you know, the discursive roots of, uh, you know, etymological discursive roots, Indo-European roots and that sort of thing, you can uh, draw a lot of conclusions about um, cross-cultural and trans-cultural uh, kinds of, of movements of, of thought anyway. Were you interested in that before you went to Toronto in 74? Um, I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in it, but it would be embryonic uh, 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 at first. Uh, one of the things that I was most interested in in Gu- reading the Gutenberg Galaxy was, you know, all of McLuhan's discussion about the sensorium and uh, synesthesia and uh, all of those uh, kinds of things. Which are themes you're still writing about. Yeah, um, well, they still don't know very much about them, and I still find that a lot of the definitions and descriptions are really, really wanting. Right. Now, now what... Um Let's see. Uh, what we're um, I just thought my just uh, oh, hey Sheila. Um, if you miss anything, you can always hear the recording. Okay, so um, you can always go back and check that if you miss anything. Uh, the uh, so we're talking about the tr- spiritual. Now, what do you say about Marshall's Catholicism? What stories, anecdotes do you have in understanding what that meant for Marshall? Um. Well. Uh, uh, let me let me go at it in a little bit odd okay. way, um, and uh, that is, um, uh, I knew about McLuhan's death um, before it was announced, because uh, the night that McLuhan died, I had a dream, and in the dream, um, McLuhan appeared behind a dark rolling cloud, and uh, while cupping his mouth, uh, shouted. Uh, at me, um, we can still talk, 
we can still talk. Mm. I, I used to... I used to play the piano for McLuhan uh, at his home in Witchwood. Um, and so in the dream, I was playing the piano, and then there was this rolling cloud and McLuhan on the other side. And I knew exactly what he meant right away uh, because uh, uh, M- M- McLuhan was saying to me that uh, we could still communicate despite the fact uh, that I was a Gnostic Christian. That was his <laughs> way of of talking to me now, few knew that McLuhan often refrained from having conversations with those who were unlikely to be of St. Augustine's elect, right, of right. true believers. Uh, this was because McLuhan never wanted to uh, conclude a significant uh, dialogue or conversation once it had begun. And uh, so, yeah, there was, you know, like, like, People don't really realize that quite a lot of the time that McLuhan was seeming to be uh, put off by them or not as responsive to them uh, as they would have liked him to be, that actually what he was doing is that he was involved in this rather peculiar uh, behavior. But I don't, at the same time, I'm quick to say I don't want to give uh, the impression uh, that I thought that uh, McLuhan was anyway uh, crazy or anything like that. I, I, I think that McLuhan was just a really genuine mystic. And I think, uh, in other words, he felt that he had a direct relationship uh, with, with, with God or with um, uh, the entire uh, creation or the universe of universes. Um, he did and, say that. In some interview he said he had a constant dialogue with God 24-7. Yeah, well, what what people didn't know, well, he people people didn't know that that uh, he would go every day pretty much to uh, to have mass in the morning, and during the mass he would have um, visitations, or so he said, uh, with Mary the mother, and they would discuss uh, the nature of uh, of communication, uh, of a kind of universal communication. Yeah, in an interview around Christmas 1970 on CBC, uh, he talked about his, what do you call them, a Mariolite? A Mariol, what's that, That the ones who make a big deal out of uh, the Virgin Mary? What, what are they called in the Catholic Church, Marionites? I'm not sure. Yeah, he, he talked, he said, he, I, I remember this. Here, you know, you have this image in 1970 of this guy talking with the Beatles or, or, or uh, pop culture, and he says, I use the Virgin Mary as a guide in all my media studies. That's absolutely right, and that's uh, quite... And she, uh, she is a guide to many people. Yeah, well, that's why there is the Mary, Mariolatry, I think it's called. Well, she's the great mediatrix. She's the great educator. Uh, um, in McLuhan's terms, the mystical body of Christ is, in fact, the electromagnetic spectrum. And as Have you got him saying that to you? Um, gosh, you know, that would be really hard. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure. We talked about a lot of things. No, that's a pretty a significant uh, statement in relation to what, uh, my study. So, yeah, the second com No, the second comma is electric environment? Um, I... Yeah, I don't. I don't think that he thought in quite those kinds of of literal terms. That sounds more Joycean to me than okay. it does McLuhan. But you're saying that electricity was for him the bo- an extension of the body of Christ, 
the electric technology or electricity well, the, the, the in the body. The body of Christ was, in fact, the entire electromagnetic spectrum with all of its uh, somatic resonations. And the mystical body of Mary is the life force, uh, which in gen- is, is the life force in general and also of the church and of the human family and of the congregation. Uh, and the congregation is the conscious, the conscientious, and the, and the, the faithful. Mm. And uh, the relationship for McLuhan between uh, those two mystical states is, is really the word or the generation of all states of being through waves and vibrations. And uh, light resonates or reflects, and the word is the resonation of light. Were you raised as a Catholic? No, I okay. was raised in the no-name brand uh, church, the the uh, United Church. Right, because yeah. the, those words you just said are in your writings of today, about waves and resonance and that, You're, and the yeah, Christosphere. Well, we were always looking at that, uh, at that kind of, of thing, and in a much uh, deeper way. They usually pull apart all of uh, McCoon's ideas on... Uh, resonation on the gap on the resonant interview and on what resonation was in the first place and he meant it I think in a much uh, wider uh, respect than, than, than it's understood uh, he didn't know the work of uh, uh, Kladny and Hans Yeni in terms of how uh, 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 sound can be represented visually and visual uh, vision in terms of sound, uh, in terms of, of uh, uh, resonant, resonation. Well, did you know that back then? Um, no. That's I later. Re- it, that, that's I research. It back then, uh, it wasn't until. Uh, uh, but but you know it it, it really really was no surprise to me uh, because of all that I had read about uh, synesthesia and uh, it was no surprise uh, either. McLuhan talks about this in terms of the logos and ratio and, yeah. and analogy and you know the relationship between the analog and the analogical which is, is sometimes difficult to articulate. Yeah maybe we'll get that. I just want to say this. Uh, talking about him saying we can talk when I organized uh, the archives for McLuhan, not the letters, but the other boxes, in November 81, for some reason, uh, Corinne McLuhan told me, come drive me home late one night. I lived near where, uh, you know, St. Clair and Kenwood. You might know that area? St. Clair and Okay. Uh, I lived near Witchwood. And she says, just out of the blue, she says, Marshall, uh, Marshall has spoken to me a couple of times. And I said, where is this? She said, usually in the kitchen. And uh, I don't know if I asked what did he say, but she told me that he said, I should have written more about Jesus. That's what she said he said. So when you tell me that we can talk, he was doing it with uh, Corinne. Yeah. Um, As we, we mentioned, Bob, both of us are a little surprised that we haven't had uh uh, McLuhan in our dreams more often and that we haven't had that uh, kind of psychic sense of McLuhan. But uh, what I said to you, I'd like to not elaborate on, but just say that I think that McLuhan really became um, uh, all of those of us who uh, were, were, were close to him. Uh, in other words, you know, I sort of feel, uh, w- without making too much of it or being too silly, I, I kind of feel imbued with his spirit. Yeah, he became I, part of your conscious life, not yeah. your dreams. 
that's 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 right, and and deeper than that too. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, McLuhan believed that Mary, the mother, is the mediatrix, and Christ is the mediator for the word. So Christ. So so Christ is the content, and and Mary is the ground. What's mediat um, mediatrix or media? What's that yeah. mean? M- mediatrix. Is it is mediatrix? Are you saying mediatrix? Yes. Yes. A T R I X. And a media is that the formal ground? Um, uh, I, you know, um, I let me let me explain this a little bit. So uh, Christ expresses the word, and Mary educates all in the word, including Christ. <laughs> and I do remember uh, uh, McLuhan talking about how uh, it was important to talk with Mary because Mary was educating him on how she had educated Christ in the Word. <laughs> wow. Okay. Now, is this discussed in class, Scott, or privately with you? No, no, this is private. You know, I'd go in after he had gone to Mass, uh, and uh, he usually took a nap. Uh, and uh, sometimes it was in the morning, sometimes it was in the afternoon. And this was in the big common room in the coach house. And uh, there was a, a, a kind of a, a rickety old lawn chair there or day bed. Yeah. And he would lie down on that. And then he'd say, sit down, Scott, and, you know, pull up your chair. So he'd lie there sometimes with his hands behind his head. And um, I'd be s- seated. Uh, and he would then go into uh, a discussion uh, as to what he had learned from Mary that uh, that morning. <laughs> yeah, but here's the amazing thing, Scott. You're not Catholic. As you pointed earlier, he'd only right. go into this stuff with his uh, fellow right. Catholics. But I for know. some some reason, I, I he saw the mystic Gnostic part of himself yeah. in you. Yes, he, yeah, and... And uh, it was it was it was quite wonderful, except that I I felt less like a, uh, a mystic and more like Freud <laughs> <laughs> with with an electric electronic Jung, Jungian uh, to a certain degree. Right now, you, did you ever see Fletcher Markle's telescope 1967, where Marshall is being interviewed and he's lying on his couch at home? No, but I've seen pictures of him. Yeah, that. it's the only time you know anybody they never got interviewed lying down on a couch. He didn't mind, but then you put oh, that. He didn't mind. Right, and you put that, and he talks about. I think he even talks about it. It gives um, when you're lying down, your uh, all your senses are more involved than if you're standing and being verbal. I think well, he even I didn't says know that. that. I haven't heard that, but I love it. That's yeah, I think he said the psychiatric coach was popular as you started moving the electrical effect of the radio environment and movies. People want to express more than visual perspective, so they they could let themselves their senses sort of mix synesthetically by lying on a couch. He says that in one of his books, I think. Anyways, the uh, what was the point there? The um, he's lying there. Uh, yeah. So so anyway, Christ is the voice. Where oh, I wanted to throw this in mouth. the Gnostic part. One time in 975, I mentioned that I was living on bananas. He says, oh, you shouldn't do that. And I said, why do you say that? He says, oh, Edgar Casey says you shouldn't live on eat a lot of bananas. So he quoted Edgar Casey to me. <laughs> <laughs> now that's Gnosticism. Yeah, the medium. Uh, he, he didn't think too much of uh, Casey, though. I don't think uh, anything. No, I don't think that's the revolutionary part. Bruce Powell yeah, is trying he to. Liked, uh, Benson's work, which was light invisible. Have you ever heard of that text? No, who's Benson? 
Um, he was another one of those uh, uh, oracular kinds of, of uh, mystical speakers who was uh, writing in the in the uh, along the same lines as Madame Blavatsky and okay, he's part maybe part of the British Society of Psychical Research. Uh, I'm I, I'm not sure. Father Benson was his name. So oh, okay, here's what I wanted to say about this this part is um, Bruce Powell is engaging. Uh, the Gnostic part of Marshall, writing about it, trying to research it, in his his playing off North of Fry with McClune. But I would I would say that I think Marshall saw the effective electric environment not only for the Catholic literate world, but for the acoustic psychic Gnostic world. He he was a revolutionary that's in both right. worlds. Yes, that's right, and very few people recognize that. And so I'm glad to hear you say that. And so, yeah, I always felt extremely comfortable in that way. Well, did you know that he was just doing this with you? Um, uh, I I didn't know who he was doing it with and how uh, how many. Uh, It was something that I didn't talk about for many, many, many years. Mm. uh, Because, uh, uh, but then I only talked about it recently uh, when I was asked to contribute to an art installation by Art Clay, which was called the Church of Marshall McLuhan. And it was an installation that was sent all over uh, the world and, and has been to uh, China and to Finland and all, all over the place. So I, I wrote a piece for it called uh, McLuhan, Not Just Any Holy Fool. Hmm. And um, right at the beginning of my piece, I first of all quote McLuhan as saying, Satan is a very great electric engineer. Right. And then I quote from Corinthians, uh, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. Right. Um, now, to, to a, when we talk about the New York art world and Andy Warhol, you're also um, maybe the only person other than Harley Parker to experience or hear Marshall discuss the New York art critics Rosenberg and Greenberg. And the Greenberg-McLuhan dialectic is really important. Could, could you, before we get into the brain research that you helped McLuhan with, can you talk about what you remember about Clement Greenberg and what Marshall thought of those, those kind of critics? Well, we used to disparage um, Greenberg and Rosenberg and all of those people. We didn't go into very much detail. It was sort of understood between us. Uh, that you know, I thought that of Greenberg as dealing with media is uh, as being very flat and linear and literal, and uh, uh, and whereas uh, uh, McLuhan was of course dealing with media in its more open and more resonant, multifaceted way. Uh, uh, so let me so, say this, Scott. So you take Tom Wolfe's satire of that scene in the book, The Painted Word. But if you say that, I see that that Greenberg interprets Jackson Pollock's work as a retrieval almost of the effect of the printed page. And he can't see that Jackson Pollock is showing the light through of television in his painting. That's the difference. The, the flat plane is him just retrieving his own Gutenberg bias, unconscious, and McLuhan is saying no. He's not looking yeah, at it. Well, name. McLuhan saw in um, action painting the act of electric uh, uh, neurological matrix. Yeah. Uh, that was was the, the mandate, the electronic mandate for participation. Yeah. 
So, uh, and Greenberg was trying to retrieve the, uh, the light reflection off the printed page. Yeah, I think that that's right. He couldn't see, see the light through. Um, although I'd have to look at Greenberg again. Maybe on another program we can discuss oh, that'd be good. Um, uh, Greenberg and those people after I've had a chance to look at it again. Well, we can bring in Shoki, who did a great new Ph.D. on this issue between Greenberg, she says, uh, develops the concept of the aesthetic medium, and McLuhan represents the group that does the technological medium. And that's the, the hidden battle in art criticism that no one has ever spelled out until Shoki's theory, her uh, Ph.D. Yeah, and I want to thank you so much for helping her out so much in that. In yeah, work, uh, and she'll be she'll be joining us in the summer once her teaching duties are finished in oh, Chicago. Great. Anyway, I want to I want to continue. I'm still making a point here about Mary, uh, Mary the mother. Yeah. So McLuhan's conception of Mary is similar to uh, to that of those who believe that there was a sacred living uh, female state of being which existed before the creation of the universe. Uh, as a kind of homely, uh, pardon me, holy womb. Mm. Uh, in in this conception, the state of being results in a universe of universes which is unified in the transparency of light, of the way that all real reality seems to be part of the binding nature that makes for transparency. So uh, this is the That's television. That's television. Yeah, that has something to do with television, but it has a lot to do with the corpus callosum. Okay, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. In other words, with giving that feeling that all of our uh, so-called senses and all of our acts and all of our reality and our projection of it, all of our illusions uh, and delusions are, are all of a piece and all coming together. So that, that pre-creation, is that the black hole, the void, the Buddhist void, the... Uh, Pre-existent. What is that? I mean, Marshall says. I just read the other day that for the Christian, there's no such thing as pre-existence. He says, for the Catholic or for the Christian, pre-existence is nonsense. What did, that was written in '53. Uh, does that connect to what you're talking about? Something before, before creation. Well, my idea of the Buddhist void is um, related to uh, Maitreya or the Buddhist idea um, uh, of, of uh, the, Maitreya was the, the, the Buddha to come right. uh, and um, the um, unreal imagination was the void and the unreal imagination was the awareness that, uh, that uh, all of human awareness is illusory and um, so um, uh, the void is, is uh, something which is continually uh, creating something which is is unique or new on 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 the moment uh, uh, in in the universal moment. So how's Mary relate to that, or the image you're saying, the holy ground of Mary? Um, I, I I think that you're on to something there, but I haven't looked at it uh, too closely. Uh, we know uh, that uh, there was an African uh, female deity called Uwa uh, E W. You, you, um, who uh, came uh, historically before uh, we get the patriarchal uh, uh, God of Moses. And um, so I would say that Mary is related to that mother goddess uh, kind of, of, of figure. 
And the idea of Uwa was very much like uh, that of that I'm speaking of in like unlike Mary, every what everything comes out of the womb of the universe of universes. Now did Marshall say that to you? No, but we we did we did kind of talk around that mm. uh in that uh that was an understanding. Uh yeah, it, it's so hard. That was so long ago, Bob, really, to be exact about it. But you're I still writing know. you're still writing about it. It's on your yeah. mind still writing about it. Right, so you don't have to give us the exact point, but you're saying definitely Marshall emphasized Mary as something uh, as the ground for Jesus, or they would flip back and forth like the corpus callosum, equally important. I mean, the interval. Is it like they're the, Mary's the interval? And therefore the interval requires a, a polarity that's flipping back and forth. So Jesus and Mary would be uh, hendiades, one by means of two. Just trying to get the concept of a container when there really is no container. Right. So, yeah, hey, just yeah. come up with something. Blinda the hen in Finney's Wake uh, could be a pun on hen deities, and that's, that's the title of one of the chapters in Cliché Archetype, and it means one by means of two. And then you juxtapose the fact that prelier people can see the duck and the, the optical illusion, the uh, Trump Leo, at the same time, whereas we go back and forth. So the preliterate awareness of it happening at the same time would make Jesus and Mary very closely the same thing, though it's uh, two by one by means of two. I'd, I'd like to say something about that, and that is in terms of, of uh, Gestalt uh, theory. Uh, we have, in terms of inventio in the eye, we have figure. In terms of di- uh, uh, disposition ear, we have the ground. And then we have, in terms of elocutio uh, or taste or, or uh, uh, synthesis and the gestalt. And, but after that, we have memoria, which is smell or touch, and uh, it relates to pattern recognition, which McLuhan saw in terms of archetype. Uh, so archetype is a pattern, record. It, it kind of flips into a new kind of figure after you have a gestalt or are getting something. But then in pronunciatio, uh, you have uh, the real transformation, uh, which is like transfiguration mm. and uh, just anything you want to put uh, trans in, in, in front of. You have the change, you have the new now, you have the diamond body in its in its uh, movement. Right. So what Scott was just citing was the five parts of rhetoric in the scriptural exegesis, inventio, elocutio, dispositio, memory, and pronunciatio, right? That's right. And could you just to make it, which one, uh, what sense, uh, inventio is the eye, uh, dispositio is the ear. Is, is, is the eye, and it's a figure, and in, in dialectics it's uh, yeah. the thesis. Yeah. In dispositio, it's the ear, and it's antithesis, and it's the ground. Yeah. And uh, elocutio is uh, t- taste, yeah. and it's synthesis, it's style, and that's the gestalt. And then memoria is uh, smell or sometimes touch, uh, as in touch tone, or t- touchstone. Yeah. And that's your... Uh, metaphor, your allegory, and your analogy, and that relates to pattern recognition. Right, let me, so the elocutio was smell? Uh, elocutio is taste. Taste, and what is um, dis, uh, 
Pronunciacio is what? Pronunciacio is is um, uh, sometimes smell and sometimes touch. It's 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 uh, proprioceptive. It's movement. Proprioceptive. Yeah. yeah. And what was the fifth one we're leaving out? We got this. Um, well, that's pronunciacio. Okay, we're going to have to do it again. Let's keep in Marshall. Keep in mind that Marshall said he he went with the four sense model. Because well, I get that's because he was constantly trying to work it in terms of grammarian exegesis, yeah. which the was the literal, moral, allegorical, and anagogical. And so, you know, you know what he was trying to do was, uh, I think, turn it into uh, an interpretive uh, state, uh, which was more logical uh, and more related to uh, the analysis of the word. Than related to the analysis of, of uh, purely the senses. Yeah, and it's almost like he'd say that to literate people. To non-literate people, he would say we had 14 senses. You know, he, he yeah, or he would even said you know 36, 38. Um, in a way, uh, there really is, are no single senses. Uh, they there is a continuum of feeling, which uh, can be. Uh, can be looked at in, in any number of different ways. Yeah, and we're going to we'll develop that in your theme of effect versus affect. We'll, we'll get to that. That's right. That's a really good way to do it. Yeah. So just, uh, it, for me, it was a bit confused. Uh, inventio is eye, dispositio is ear, elocutio is taste, right. and memoria is? Is, uh, is touch, as in touchstone. But we also have memoria in the Proustian sense, uh, where it is... Uh, 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 remembered smell and taste. Right, the scent of time. Yeah. And then, yeah. Pr and pronunciatio is is uh, smell in the sense of gnosis or ah. So, so actually, you actually have three there. You've got eye, ear, and taste, which Marshall said can be linked in with smell. And then you've got memory and pronunciatio have, that have smell uh, qualities in them. That's right. Interesting. It's like so, three so, plus the so, fourth, which is those three other divisions, which is a way to do it. It's uh, you got to have that blur. You got you can't have it precise. You know what I mean? No, no. That's he and he would never allow that. And yeah. He used to get terribly frustrated with people who uh, who, who didn't who didn't get it. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's I don't think that's ever been said before. Uh, you know my stuff, and then pooling with your stuff about the senses. Well, this is, and then relating to the uh, levels of exegesis and the five parts of rhetoric. Maybe Eric has done something on that, but never the way you've just laid it out. So we have an exclusive here. Well, we have to even go further because um, what's been discovered is that we don't have parts of the brain that work in terms of the individual senses in the ways that we used to think we do. We are now finding that the brain uh, reacts in terms of the, the sensory task which is being, uh, being dealt with. And so uh, the same part of the brain lights up when somebody is reading through Braille as when they're uh, reading uh, visually. And, and Marshall, didn't Marshall would say they're different. And the sensory model. Yeah, we would have to, I think, update uh, Marshall a little bit on a lot of these things. It's just fine-tuning, really. Uh, if you uh, believe brain research. This is if you acknowledge that genre of knowledge. 
Yeah, um, I'm not as up to date on it as I'd like to. I mean, you'd have to work really a lot. I was really reading all of the latest uh, stuff in uh, the middle 70s, uh, but uh, I, I've only kept that up in tangential ways, uh, in specialized ways that my own particular interest at the time. Yeah, I was Tom McLuhan emphasizing the Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, you know, doctrine of analogical proportionality as an anti-environment, a counter-environment to the left hemisphere categories of brain research. He purposely laid up that, and it turned out his way of understanding uh, media's extension of the senses and his definition of senses was more useful than the brain researchers to understanding what media were doing to people. He actually saw that Thomas Aquinas' model was probably more relevant to put coherence and tactility in our interactions with collective media than these particular specialties. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't have the same scholarship that you, that you do here, and I don't want to present myself as exclusively uh, a McLuhan scholar. Either. Right. Okay, well, let's go into how you discovered Sperry's work and... and uh, it made, uh, yeah, the, how you made the left-right brain, uh, left-right, um, left-brain, right-brain stuff, which was starting to percolate out in the in the early 70s, you discovered that and mentioned it to Marshall. Well, yeah, what I had done is I had already been doing all of my research into the connection between William James and Gertrude Stein. Right. And William James was uh, really synthesizing or bringing together. Uh, all of the European discoveries and then announcing that in a populist way to American culture. Uh, and and uh, Henry James uh, and Alice James were both aiding and abetting him in different ways. Yeah, Henry James being the famous novelist that Marshall wrote about, who was William James's brother. That's right. And Alice as a, uh, as a female uh, intellectual of, of uh, great uh, merit who hasn't been properly studied or understood their, their, their sister. Um, but anyway, uh, he also was, uh, William James was also uh, looking at all of the discoveries related to uh, dissociated sensibility or to uh, hypnotic uh, trance states. And he was looking at the work of, of, of uh, Mesmer and uh, of um, Charcot and Binet and Freud as well. And uh, what was discovered in the 19th century was that, um, that the ordinary individual could be divided uh, or dissociated into three basic hypnotic trances, one which was just visual, which was um, a left-brain trance and a shallow trance, and one which was um, visual and audible tactile, which was a right-brain trance, and then a deeper trance, which uh, was visual, audible, tactile, and involved the, uh, uh, the uh, autonomic nervous system. So this is what James laid out. So James laid that all out, and it uh, formulated a much more comprehensive view of uh, what comprised the human conscious and unconscious uh, uh, situation than really, I think, anything that uh, Freud uh, ever managed to do afterwards. And McLuhan, of course, uh, also uh, was uh, looking at James, uh, uh, William James right along, uh, along with me. So uh, and William James was talking about um, 
the stream of consciousness, and James Joyce, of course, was developing the novel as the stream of consciousness, and McLuhan was studying uh, Joyce, studying uh, William James, and yeah. so all were of a party uh, together. And in Stream of Consciousness, William James talks a great deal uh, about um, affect or fringe awareness. And uh, fringe awareness is all of the, the subsidiary information, uh, sensory, conscious and unconscious, that we aren't paying uh, uh, attention to, and that, but that we need to have uh, 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 some uh, awareness of in order to understand the nature of context, in order to contextualize anything. Okay, Scott, let me just supplement. The one quote I have from McLuhan is in the 70s, he talked about because the car, the driver of the automobile started to activate his peripheral vision because he had to drive in the car, and the, and the 19th century literate person was more focused. And the center, the macula, which is the macula and which is periphery anyways, he writes about this and through the vanishing point, but he develops it in the 70s, and he says tennis came in as a sport in you know Western culture because it resonated with the new demands of the automobile driver. You need to develop your peripheral awareness. So with tennis, you go back and forth watching and developing your peripheral awareness. Is that what you're talking about as fringe, the fringe awareness? The peripheral view yeah. is the fringe view, but it's also understood as effect, and as effect is understood in terms of empathy. It's the part of you that actually connects with your environment. Yeah, you're looking at the ground. You're not looking at what you're looking at. You're looking at. at the ground. Yeah. That's right. You know, when you see Duchamp in the Andy Warhol factory, remember people, famous people come in and they'd get film staring at the camera? And every, everybody would try to stare down the camera and not blink. What did Duchamp do? He, you could see him going back and forth, looking at the rest of the factory lab, the factory studio, looking at the edge, at the, right. looking around the camera, which I always thought was intentional. Yeah, it certainly was. Yeah. So that's it. He was emphasizing the fringe awareness. That's right. So that's affect. What is effect in James's world? Um. Oh, I'd have to study that in particular, uh, but uh, effect would be something that has had more to do with uh, cause and had to do more with figurative cause. Uh, McLuhan is looking quite often at uh, metaphysics, which is looking for, you know, um, formal cause, the Aristotelian sense. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, looking at the fringe, efficient causality, causality is the macula or looking through the center of the eye at the f visual figure, which most of us are paying attention, focusing, and the fringe awareness is looking at the ground, which can be your connection to the environment, which includes connecting to people, the empathy. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I'm getting lost in my own thought here. So go on for a minute there, Bob. Yeah, e efficient causality is looking at the figure at the center of the eye. Formal causality is looking at the audience and the ground of the environment around the figure. What McLuhan is constantly looking at is for the primus mobile, yeah. you know, the prime mover. And so it's really not correct to talk about him looking for formal cause uh, exactly. He's looking how far back can I go and how far forward can I go in terms of, of um, uh, the the wave qualities of the universal, and as opposed to the particle, as opposed I think to that's the particle. Retro causality. 
We're um, going to have to go retro. Re- you're right. It's caused retro causality. There's lots of new work uh, on that. And, yeah, do you want to talk more about that, whoever you are? That's 8-bit. Well, that's yeah. a, this is 8-bit. Yeah, Reg, I think what you're talking about is the uh, it's actual primal, the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail. Where And, and, and Bob has spoken about this in his uh, McLuhan conversations when you, the effects precede the causes, the causes mm. don't precede the effects. Um, yes. And, and this is when you're talking about fringe awareness and retrocausality, now we're getting into what's on the minds of a lot of uh, artists right now as as they're interpreting the uh, the current 2012 uh, memes that are floating around. I just wanted to throw that out there. I don't, no, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah but can, that brings up something that I remember. McLuhan was always quick to say that there wasn't just one Eurobarus, there were two. Ah. And, you know, he would point to, you know, the uh, Cretan uh, goddess figures where uh, the, go- uh, the, the, the priestess is holding up two snakes. And right. <laughs> so I never knew exactly what that meant, but I've, I've come to... Uh, think of it in terms of the matter uh, Eurobarus and the antimatter Eurobarus. Yeah, or the double helix. And the double helix, which of course is a way of looking at retrocausality and epigenetics and that sort of thing. Too. Now, you know in the early 70s, Marshall started talking about spelling it out a little more, effects precede causes. Did you hear him talk about that in class or to you? Um, no, I've heard him talk about that in general. Yeah. Um, and uh, he would put that out and see what other people would say about it. And, you know, like uh, we, there was a kind of agreement that synchronicity was something that had to be there as a kind of spiritual uh, uh, form or ground or something um, before there could be any effect in the first place. Mm. And uh, so, so uh, that's 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 a refinement. I mean, Eric McLuhan, his new book is called Media and Formal Cause, and he's emphasizing uh, Marshall's use of formal causality. And I would say Marshall would be more interested in the rise of interest in formal causality caused by the electric environment, not that he's favored formal causality. Would you agree with that? Um, well, I would think in terms that you know of you know McLuhan and and. Uh, uh, him looking at uh, the idea, uh, the postmodern idea, that uh, there is no origin, right. and him seeing that as, um, I don't know, he would just uh, probe it. <laughs> yeah, you're saying that he would probe the no origin meaning. Yeah, I, I, you know, a lot of times I don't think McLuhan, you know, would would. It wasn't that he was sitting on the fence, but that he was had uh, a really open mind, and so yeah. he was, you know, looking at, at at the way everything fit with everything else. That's so, right, uh, and he would point out that tribal person finds everything connected. See, he was even noticing that state of perception as a figure from his position of no place. Yeah, I, I, I once again, although he needed to. Uh, use words when he spoke to us (laughs) and needed to uh, that even when we get into those kinds of you know there was always the possibility that you would find a tribe that didn't have that kind of of um, uh, of of general view yeah did you know that he he once said around 1970 I assume it's an accurate quote 
he spoke in San Francisco, and I think this is an article that was written up in the Rolling Stone magazine. It was like his last real speech to the 60s milieu. And he said that there was a private man, a private awareness, a private kind of man, long before, further back than tribal organization of yeah, cavemen. Yeah, that's right, and that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. But I, you know, what I would want to get at. And uh, that's a lot what I have been looking at in terms of the uh, autistic monad, uh, the individual uh, without, uh, without culture, the disembodied. The, the, the yep. And the digital environment re- retrieves ancient private man. Yeah, and, that, and, and, and that's really important. Yeah. So what theories that I have been trying to articulate regarding autism and social autism and, and well, you're the first person I could bring this idea up and then contribute something that enhances it because uh, you know people do a quick summary uh, of McLuhan. Well, man began as tribal and then became uh, writing and then tactile electric. Those, those phases they lay out. If you actually you know listen to McLuhan, looked at his little promptings like that one time in recorded public lecture saying there was this condition before tribal awareness to know that now is a key to understanding the digital effect which is what you're going into yeah, yeah you're, you're yes yes uh, okay yes, sheila let's hear I, sheila yes may i just make a request yes um, yep we we did touch on this subject of uh of uh autism yeah uh, i had it up, I think, last week or the week before, and I wonder if we can hold that thread and explore that a little bit more. Well, that's what, uh, when did you start, first of all, let's clear up about the, the Perry influence, how you discovered that. You're saying that Gertrude Stein led you into understanding these really unique stuff from William James, because when you look at Marshall's uh, theme of the analogical mirrors, that means it's not just a visual mirror. And if it's a mirror that hypnotizes you, you get that in James, the um, hypnosis for the eye, hypnosis for the ear, and then the hypnosis for tactility. That's a really could be useful ground for McClellan's manipulating satire. Well, it, it's yeah, it's much deeper, and there's a lot a lot more work done there. And McLuhan is is much more savvy about it uh, than than he would appear. In other words, he's aware of this research. Uh, as he's trying to uh, to express it in a language that uh, that people can understand. That's right. Uh, so you so you do Stein, unless you want to say one more sentence. Well, William James and, and Stein together. You're doing them together, and that leads you into the latest brain research. And then you mentioned this to McLuhan. Did he do a eureka right in front of you? Um, well. Well, what happened is that I had uh, written out my uh, proposal for my thesis, and I had told him the background uh, that I was looking at. You know, uh, he had a good idea of, of uh, what my research involved, um, and uh, he 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 didn't say too much about it. Um, but you have to understand something about McLuhan, and that was that he really wanted um, individuals to find their own way. So he didn't want to lead them on. He was perfectly aware of what kind of uh, affect and effect that he could have on his students. Um, I remember I was complaining to Sheila Watson about how what a terrible uh, supervisor that McLuhan was. 
and uh, during the time when I was writing my my thesis, and Sheila says, "Oh, now, 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 uh, you know, uh, uh, McLuhan is is writing me every uh, few weeks, and he's saying in his letters, can Scott do it? Do you think he could do it? Do you think he's going to do it?'" <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he was was cheering me uh, on, uh, but uh, really leaving me uh, to my own autonomy. And so anyway, what happened was uh, I finished my thesis, and, um, uh, and uh, he, he, he read it. And at the same time, he was talking with Murray Schaefer, and Murray Schaefer was beginning to talk about left brain, right brain kinds of things. They, so they make a famous and, Canadian composer, Murray yeah, Schaefer. The, the combination of, of uh, uh, the work that I was doing in my thesis and Murray Schaefer having uh, private convivial uh, sessions with him, um, he did have a real eureka. And then you couldn't settle him down for a while. I mean, he was electrified. Uh, and, uh, uh, and about the brain research. About the brain, brain research, about spirit. And he started, uh, he phoned Spiri, and he was very, very disappointed with, uh, with how he was met. You know, he tried to explain to Spiri that um, he was, um, uh, that, that what Spiri had discovered, uh, along with all of his other colleagues, uh, uh, you know, made his, his work that much more uh, sensible and comprehensive. Yeah, he's liking, he wrote about, he said, uh, when I read the left, right, left brain, right brain stuff, it confirmed my uh, dialectic of visual space and acoustic space. That's right. But, but I was really, you have to remember that McLuhan had already read it some years before, although I, I don't know um, when or where. I do know that he did. Uh, William James, uh, right. the uh, principles of psychology. So it was already there. And then there was uh, uh, Lang's book, The Divided Self, which was uh, named after a chapter of William James's book. And that had come out, uh, you know, in the, in the 60s. You mean R.D. Lang? Was it R.D. Lang? Yeah. Yeah, L-A-I-N-G. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, so a, a lot of this was percolating. And then there's Lane Entrago's book, um, The Therapy of the Word. There's yeah. that book, too, you've mentioned in your writings. That was the other book well, that he that found. Well, that was a very, very important uh, uh, book for McLuhan. And uh, at one point, McLuhan and I talked about doing a Ph.D. dissertation together, and I was going to do it on the therapy of the word uh, as it had uh, arisen through uh, the history of English literature. Yeah. And uh, this was based upon uh, the work of Thelwell uh, uh, in uh, the beginning of the 19th century. And he had a theory of... Um, of the medical word uh, and it being harmonic. And he criticized um, uh, Dryden and Milton for moving away from, uh, from dialogue into, uh, from moving away from dialectic into, into uh, a, a more private individualistic way of thinking and that this, this distorted um, uh, the harmonious relationship which the individual had with his, his society. And, of course, McLuhan was, 
was uh, really, really interested in that. And yeah, well, he'd be another figure to explain McLuhan's thesis that uh, the printing press moved the poets into the Dryden-Milton mode, and then the electric environment retrie retrieved an earlier sensibility. But the reason, the reason Sperry would not like what McLuhan was saying, because essentially, you don't know if per Sperry would understand it, McLuhan said... What? Well, Sperry didn't get it at all. No, no, but here's what McLuhan would be saying. Do you realize... Do you realize that the electric environment makes us favor the right hemisphere now. And you imagine a brain specialist thinking of these solid parts of the brain in the skull, and here's McClone implying that they're slosh around like in a goldfish bowl by print that the left hemisphere is, is hoiked up, and the electric environment hoiked up the right hemisphere. I don't know if he even admitted that, but that's what he would say in his writings about the brain research. And you just see a specialist like Sparrow would be shocked at that kind of talk. Do you that's see what I'm saying? Right. But I'd like to say something, too, about that, and that is that McLuhan didn't think that, that and maybe, maybe other people made this point before, I'm not sure, but um, that, that, that we would have uh, as many, if not more, problems with uh, a right-brained uh, hemisphere uh, uh, society or culture as we, would with the as we did or have had with the left-brained one. That's right. Um, so what we were trying to do and talked about a bit was then how do you move into um, a culture which is entirely uh, integrated through all of its, um, uh, all of its uh, senses in, in a full uh, uh, environmental way. That's right. The visual sense dominated for 400 years. It's, it's been brought back into harmony with the other senses with the electric age. It doesn't mean you throw the left hemisphere in the, in the visual sense out. It's now can dance, uh, you know, join the group at the pub more. That's right. And that includes banking. And McLuhan's talking about the role of money in the, in the coming 70s and 80s. But the thing is, did McLuhan ever say to you that He's excited about the uh, research of Sperry because it proves something that Sperry's not aware of, that the ground, the electric environment, would favor the characteristics laid out by Sperry about the right hemisphere, and you could start to see it in the pop culture already. Did he talk about that level with you? Well, McLuhan had already discovered that years before Sperry. Yes. He was coming after after uh, after McLuhan. That's why McLuhan read all his books. Every day he'd get George to run over and get a pile of books out of St. Michael's and Mars would take them home at night. He'd scan through looking for stuff to fit into his, quote, theory. Yeah. Um, yeah. His theory wasn't as, as hard-edged as um, we sometimes think that it was. No, no. Yeah. But, I, you know, I say that word theory the way I would use my visual sense, you know, very uh, cautiously in uh, the corpus callosum world we're in now. So, yeah. so it's. But the point is, for literary people, he made a book, and it was perceived as theories, because that's the effect of the printing press. You will conceptualize what he's saying, even though he's discussing a swarming over the environment, perceptually. But in the book, see, that's why you had to meet McLuhan in person and see yeah. all the other multi-sensory McLuhan, not just the book McLuhan. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and including what you just brought out, the mystic part. I don't know if Bruce Powell... Um, uh, have you met Bruce Powell? No, I haven't. Oh, I, he's, he's I've be, seen him, but I haven't met him. Yeah, he's going to be excited to hear what, what you can relate from your memories of that period, because that's what he's always on about, about the Gnostic McLuhan, or the part of McLuhan that was interested in that. And he doesn't, he's all by himself in that sense. No one else is, will discuss that with him because Marshall was a Catholic, you know, is the, is the party line.
Yeah, well, I think Marshall was thinking of Catholic in its broadest sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you know, really general and all encompassing. He was a what did you call it? A multi a multicultural Catholic. Trans, yeah. Tra- trans trans what? Cultural transdisciplinary. Transdisciplinary. Very yeah. Catholic. Well, that's a new one. So now we get into social autism that Sheila wants to go into. Do you talk about autism in the seventies and eighties in your writing? Um, I write in my article on Gertrude Stein. I'm already looking at. Uh, aspects on um, on autism, and I mean that going back to the first article that McLuhan read in um, in the White Pelican. Ah, and uh, so uh, what I was doing was looking at uh, social autism in terms of elect- what I called electrocracy uh, or the general social technocultural environment, and I was writing a book called um, The Dismantled Mouth of uh, social autism. Now, you're doing that in the 70s. Yeah, I was doing that. No, I was writing the book in the 80s uh, from the beginning of the 80s on. But you, it was built on what you had from the 70s. Yeah, it was built on, on all of my uh, my interests. Wouldn't the popular expression of the new autis- autistic Another effect of the is, digital be the phrase the me decade? Um, or, uh, yeah, the medium is the mass age. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, we, we, we you already have those ideas uh, already in it. And it's also, there was that book by Christopher Lash that came out uh, on... Um, uh, narcissism. You know, on, on narcissism, uh, the culture of narcissism, you know. Uh, yeah. And there was another book on um, borderline cases of pathological narcissism, uh, uh, by uh, Kernberg, and so McLuhan knew about those books. I'm not sure he read the Christopher Lash book, but he knew about those books from me because we we mentioned them. So really, what I'm doing is I am moving, uh, trying to understand his myth about uh, uh, Narcissus and Echo right. and what its applications are, and um, looking at the idea of narcosis in terms of uh, trauma and numbness, which uh, seals the individual back off, uh, kind of cauterizes them electrically back into uh, a state of of, uh, autistic monadness or uh, modality. You you could say the digital error, error, uh, the digital technology, is this cauterizing of people not, cultures not able to handle the analog tactile effect of the mixing of satellite computers and TV in the 1560s. Well, they're actually cut off from being analogical. Yeah. Uh, it moves to the full pathology of what we see in terms of the surrealism, uh, which is, you know, the false Freudian uh, world where there is no connection between the objects, even though they are, uh, you know, like various uh, chimera. That, that's the Freudian view? Uh, well, the Freudian view would be that they all were related on an unconscious level, so that if you had uh, an animal with various uh, other animal parts attached to it, like a chimera, uh, in a dream or something like that, uh, that they surrealistically uh, could be interpreted. They were part of a dream reality. Yeah, it was a literate frame inside the book frame, the literate unconscious, and did not know that objects made their own spaces. Yeah, it's it, it, it's again uh, getting rid of um, 
all uh, it's digitally if you like getting rid of all connection right so yeah. now you're okay so that is that's anti freud's thesis it, it 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 isn't Freudian at all, and they don't seem to understand that. They think that what they're doing is they're moving beyond it in a, in a kind of a para or meta or post-Freudian way. And I'm not sure that it's ever been proper. That that's the bird's eye view. The McClune says litter people grope for. That's right. Yeah, the bird's eye view, and there's no bird's eye view when every object makes its own space in pre-litter or post-litter culture. So I was saying the analog... The pro and the eye of the camera look out onto Homer's world, not ours. That's a quote from W.H. Auden. And McLuhan used to quote that quite a bit. And then Say the uh, quote again. Uh, the, uh, the eye of the crow and the eye of the camera look out onto Homer's world, not ours. Ah, because... I'm not sure that that's exactly true. Uh, but anyway, McLuhan uh, certainly enjoyed that. I, I don't know. Do, 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 you you is, know about is that McLuhan? Because, and, uh, is that because once the click happens, it's already past tense? I think that that's a really good uh, perceptive insight into it. Uh, but I think it is just about the individual become uh, becoming instrumental, becoming a figure in terms of a technological form of re reality. Right. So in February 71, on a panel in Toronto with McLuhan, W.S. Auden, and I think Bucky Fuller was there, you, one could used to be able to hear that at CBC. Uh, I don't know if it's excerpted in Understanding Me by Stephanie McLuhan, but were you aware of that debate and how both Auden and McLuhan both claimed they won? Yeah, and it was really, really evident that McLuhan just squashed Alden. Right. Very, was, you know, Alden really had to say that to just maintain his dignity. And I, en I enjoy Alden a lot in some respects, but he certainly was no match for McLuhan. It really was the, the meeting of the new kind of poet with the traditional literate poet with that debate. I mean, uh, McLuhan says, you don't realize, Mr. Alden, the TV gets you in the gut. It goes right into your gut. Whereas Auden's just talking about what he sees on TV. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, so the, and that's your proprioceptive. But the, um, I met uh, the guy who was subletting from Auden. I might have mentioned this in an earlier seminar we did. In 73, I go to visit Auden. He's not there. He's in uh, England or something. But the guy's subletting. When I mentioned McLuhan, he goes, oh, yeah, he sees Auden, and he was a close friend to Auden, came back saying, I won, I won, I won. <laughs> he, he quoted, he was the direct recipient of that boast by Auden based on, you know, that debate. So we know Auden thought he'd won. And, you know, the literate, the literate people in Toronto favored Auden. It's like the Nixon-Kennedy debates. You know, the radio people thought Nixon won, the TV people thought Kennedy had won. Yeah. But back to, okay, so you're doing, you mentioned Auden, and we're talking about the, so I'm saying analog, the tactile analog media, before the digital, the cultures couldn't take that, so they ran and hid in the bunker of digital reaction formation. Yeah. It's, Can uh, I ask a question? This is a bit from Russell. Sheila, you said, you said something I didn't quite get about the click. When you click, it's past tense. Is that what you said? I don't know if I heard you correctly. That's what I said, yes. And you were referring to the, the mouse click? 
Uh, no, the camera. I was referring to the camera because that's what Scott had talked about. Uh, out in hand, yeah. Yeah, say the quote again for uh, eight bits. The eye of the crow and the eye of the camera look out onto Homer's world, not ours. Right. Now, if Auden writes that, the Homer world was all around Auden in the 1560s. That's rock and roll. And Auden is the old literate guy from the 20s and 30s, and he's saying that the camera, which he would be a poet of, and the crow, that's a detached visual space perspective, He's referring even from visual space bias that is back in Homer's time. He doesn't see it in the present. Or maybe he does. Maybe that does mean well, that. I, I, I think what, it's, you know what? I think he's saying something very simple. I think he's just saying that the crow and the camera see what's in front of them, whereas our world now we see so many things. And so, you know, we're, we don't we're, see. We don't see. Room, we no, no, Sheila, we don't see in our world. We listen, we hear, we feel, touch. We do it all simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, that's the extension so, of the corpus callosum. So the world, the world of just seeing what was in the camera or just seeing what the crow sees is ancient history. Right. That's the point he's making. And he could actually be saying what McClure was saying. We're visually biased, alphabetic people not noticing the ground of retrieved Homer. And that's what's unfortunate in cultural politics, that McClure and Auden couldn't have time to be with each other. Oh. Like privately and find out, do a little matching. Yes, but that's exactly. not. See, television made culture our business. It became sport. So the, the impossibility of, uh, of Auden and McClure to match and see what they're saying. Here's a quote that McClure's always saying of Auden. Because it's a, a spectacle in February 71, that changes the traditional meeting of minds that the 19th century celebrated. You follow what I'm saying, Scott? I'm sorry, I missed that. Okay, cultures are business. That means that that panel was a spectacle for, the, for journalism, for TV. And therefore, McLuhan and uh, Auden never could have a private meeting of the minds about that quote in particular, and maybe find out that Auden means what Sheila said Auden meant. Yeah, and when uh, you know, I, I think it's it's really ambiguous what uh, what Auden meant. And you could argue both that he did not understand at all what McLuhan perceived, uh, or vice versa that they were were closer uh, uh, together than um, we might think otherwise. That's right. And in in the nineteenth century. Uh, two intellectuals could write letters to each other and move toward a matching or know what they disagree on. McLuhan and Auden never got to even interact. And the same year McLuhan had a press conference with Bucky Fuller and Robert Fulford writes about it saying, these two guys are talking in the coach house and they're not, they're not paying attention to each other. They're just do, two monologues. You see, th that's the retrieval of the private man inside the global theater. I mean, the ancient private man, caveman. So... So uh, the dynamics of this, what I'm saying, is what McLuhan would be looking at. And so when you hear that debate, there's, I don't know what Auden thinks he's talking about. It's nothing to do with Marshall. And Marshall's not talking about what Auden's talking about. And, like, it's just total disconnection. Why would he, how could even one judge that they'd won? They never showed up for the same game. Yeah. 
Well, they just probably judged it by who said, you know, what they understood the most or something. That's right. And I, No, I think they talk about the audience likability. Like, I think the Auden on the recording gets a few more laughs than McLuhan because McLuhan is actually analyzing yeah. the event. And people don't want to hear that. They just yeah. want to sit back and look at the great poet and, and be charmed yeah. by him. Well, I have a couple of things that I'd, I'd like to interject here for, for Scott. Uh, okay, so we had talked, uh, you know, I had brought up this subject of uh, autism, uh, you know, because of the fact that it's spiking so much these days, and I'm wondering if, uh, and and about the only thing that you hear about it relates to, uh, you know, mercury in vaccines and so on. But I'm wondering yeah, if it's spiking because of the... Because, okay, I, I just want to say two things, and maybe you can mix them all together. If it's spiking because of the uh, increased uh, splintering of, of, of digital of media. Yes, digital media, okay, uh, right down to Twitter. And then the other part, which you may be able to relate, I don't know, uh, you know, we have uh, the political sphere being controlled by sound bites now. And, you know, politicians not sitting down and having uh, conversations among themselves and trying to go at each other through a soundbite. And so you have the deterioration of, of the political climate. A common the, public space, a common public the discourse. The average person can't even stand it anymore because you can't make any sense out of it because it's just soundbites. And then the third, there's a third part is... Uh, you know, how you were relating narcissism to the digital media and to autism and uh, mixing uh, Stephen Harper in there and his ability to control the political realm through sound bites and his narcissism. Okay, Scott, go back to what social autism meant for you in the 80s and why you come up to the point where you can't figure out what this new kind of autism is with the young kids. Let's go from back to now. Can you do that? Yeah. Can I press the pause well, button? First of all, you know, I call... Oh, wait a minute, Scott. Who's speaking? This is 8-Bit. I just wanted to press pause for a second because I, I dropped out when I asked if Sheila had mentioned when she said click, did she mean mouse click or camera click? Right after I asked that question, the, the phone disconnected. And then I, I just came back in and I heard her mentioning Twitter. I was wondering if 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 that was a yes or a no. And no, camera click, it. not mouse click. Camera click. Camera click. Okay, because it sounds like we are talking about digital environment now. Yeah, and and you can okay. rehear this when we put up in site this part. Okay. Uh, and and get what you missed. But okay, go ahead, Scott. Okay. Well, I I was calling the book the dismantled mouth of social autism. And uh, the dismantled mouth refers to a series of eight drawings by an autistic boy named Sam. And Sam was seeking to control his therapist's mouth by robotically deconstructing and reconstructing it through a series of animistic drawings. And uh, his psychopathologist, Francis Tuscan, um, said that, that this sequence of drawings had been provoked by the child's fear of the therapist's mouth. Uh, for reasons which included the therapist's ability to communicate. And Sam, first of all, drew the mouth as he perceived it, that is, with sharp teeth. Then he proceeded to break it up into segments until in the final picture he brought the segments together in a more bearable way, notably with rounded teeth instead of pointed ones. 
And in considering these drawings, Tuscan says, it needs to be realized that the child feels that by drawing the mouth, he actually traps the object on the paper and then can do what he likes with it. Uh, used in this omnipotent way, drawing is controlling rather than a representational activity. The child is not communicating with the therapist. He is controlling a dangerous thing. So I'm saying that uh, the more that we imitate our uh, telecommunications, uh, the more we become uh, like autists. We become social autists. And uh, I see uh, that the cultural development, the historical development of autism proceeds from um, the cultural devaluation of language and forms of ideation which are dependent upon language cognition. Uh, that's like simile, metaphor, analogy, metonymy, and inferential thinking in general, associative thinking, into a fundamentalist, literal, lineal mentality. Uh, and that's after uh, the idea that Bacon puts forward in the advancement of uh, education, where he uh, asks that no longer uh, should, should people um, uh, uh, use um, the tropes, uh, the uh, metaphors and the an analogies when they are, and the language uh, forms. Uh, when they are involved with uh, perceiving and, and conceiving and analyzing the world uh, in a more scientific way. Yeah, streamlining. That's the printed effect uh, that right. Bacon is the figure of. And you're that's saying right. that the digital, you, you mentioned lineal. The digital moves us into lineal? Um, um, yeah, I don't know. I have to think about that. Well, um, you said the lineal. I don't know if I heard it right. I'm talking, yes, I said it, but I was thinking about it back in terms of of um, the immediate outcome of Francis Bacon. In other words, the change of the rhetorical uh, divisions um, into uh, the uh, scientific method, where uh, inventio uh, is hypothesis and dispositio uh, is um, materials and uh, elocutio is, is uh, method and, and so on and so forth. Right. So, um, so I have Marshall somewhere's more general statement. He said the tactile age will flip back, and he says in cultures our business will flip into visual values. Uh, push to extreme the tactile sixties, the media mix will flip into visual values. I see the, the moving to the digital is it's the tactile eye, and it's actually a simulation of visual values and not actually the whole spectrum. Well, you know, I have problems with this because some people think uh, that uh, signs and symbols are digital uh, and that uh, whereas um, the analog is analogically continuous, that the metaphor and the metonymic are actually digital factors. And I think that this is just a, a, a matter of, of debate. Yeah, uh, different sensory biases or preferences over one theme. You're always going to have the split view on any subject. You're going to have the eye view and the ear view. And the ear will take the terms for their meaning, and the eye will take the same terms for their meaning. Yeah. What, what I'm really talking about is the suppression of the analog and the metaphor and of any kind of descriptive forms of language that involve that, those kinds of illusions. So that's literacy. You're talking about analog and metaphor as, right. as, right. as, as the book, as the book, not oral poetry. Um, not oral poetry, no. All right, so as a uh, writer. Yeah, and then uh, the, another uh, uh, 
development of autism proceeds from the adaption of a rational mechanical material, uh, uh, a positivist criteria for meaning and value, which confers uh, a per preferential citizenship upon our more robotic capacities. Um, in other words, the more mechanical materialistic that we become, the greater uh, the value that we are to, uh, to the culture around us. And then another, the third, is uh, the reductive belief that there is uh, physical storage in the individual mind, brain, body for mnemonic representations, and therefore that the human being is a computational machine. As soon as they get rid of the more poetic metaphors and analogies, they right away move into mixed metaphors and false uh, analogies, and one of them is uh, like uh, the fact that the uh, human uh, mind-brain body is like a computation machine. And then four, um, it's the preference for electric, electronic, and telecommunication technologies over direct verbal and nonverbal forms of communication. Uh, in, in other words, uh, being mediated. Yeah. So yes, um, that's that's really where we're at right now. Yeah. And uh, just, just so, Scott, when did you write that, Scott? When was that? What is um, that? Your thirty years ago? That's going back, you know, to about 1983, 84, 85. In right. There. Right. So and now, so, now you write about a more cataclysmic situation. Well, uh, you know, what I was really foreseeing was, as as really McLuhan did too. Um, uh, McLuhan uh, uh, understood that 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 computational uh, uh, electric electronic uh, machines uh, were going to become uh, more and more miniaturized, and so that there was the possibility of, of there being personal computation. And he also knew that eventually that um, that there would be uh, satellite communication satellites working with. Uh, 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 computers, uh, so that then uh, you would create a situation like uh, the uh, the internet or what what was originally called the ISDN, the Integrated Services Digital Network. Yeah. And uh, then at that point, and that was in the late 70s, he really began to get very upset uh, because he recognized that. Um, Certain uh, organizations, certain control, controlling influences, political, economic kinds of views uh, or, or, or interests would be able to control uh, uh, how communication um, functioned uh, on the global level. So we get a real change in his attitude towards what up to that time had been talking about that Pentecostal view or the new sphere. And, uh, all of that kind of stuff. It was post-tactile. Yeah, that's and, right. And he first writes about that in his op-ed for New York Times on September 21st, 1974. He's seeing uh, the market of futures being a fragmentation of past the organic tactile. Now, in the late 70s, I was at a talk and he gave to some psychiatrists or psychologists, September 78, I remember, and he said that we should not be going to digital computing or digital computers, but analog computers. Yeah, absolutely. He made that really, really strong, and I heard a lot uh, about that. What, what um, does he mean by analog computers? Um, well, he's just talking about an analog um, uh, computational languages. 
Um, and he talks about it in terms of Fortran, you know, the, uh, um, the yeah. you know, and, and, and how, how that works um, and how it gets rid of, of, of um, as if uh, and uh, or connective resonant kinds of, of aspects. Yeah, what in the 90s they started retrieving uh, these artificial intelligence researchers. They, wanted, they said, we need fuzzy logic. Yeah, which is, was was not fuzzy logic. It was all broken up. We need a broken, discontinuous. Well, that's what they were projecting, but they were looking for the analog factors that McLuhan said was lost. Well, he thought of uh, analog as more spiritual and more real or true, more holistic, more integrative or all-inclusive, more associational, uh, more actual or non-arbitrary. Uh, certainly more subjective, uh, non-representational, pre-symbolic, you know, all those kinds of things. Right, and he Where considered the digital as the two-bit wit. Yeah, that was that's a joke. Right. The all for that a sounds bite. like, what you're describing sounds like object-oriented uh, C language, the abstract uh, analog coding system. that you're, The way you're, in which you're describing it is object-oriented programming. Where that has gotten, we've come past Fortran, we've come past Basic, and we're now using, uh, we're establishing the abstract at the beginning and, and files, and then later on referring back to them, so we don't have to rehash them. So we're compressing the, the original code base, so that we can create code and, and new commands, and that's basically how applications are written now. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, you're yeah. saying 8-bit the digital you. You're saying the uh, object-oriented languages was the what you understand as analog language. It sounds a lot like what adjectives are being used, but what Scott is saying, uh, would an analog, getting rid of the as if, getting rid of the conditional statements, and replacing them with more of a compressed uh, uh, system. So you're, now you're using symbols to infer a condition. So if this value, then do this is now replaced with, there's no more if, it, it would just be a, uh, an underscore plus variable and a, a reference. So it, programming now has become very referential to, uh, to, to, a, to a, it's called object-oriented programming. Uh, you know, that would be so does that sound familiar to you, Scott? Well, I'm not an expert uh, on that at all. Uh, I, I'm really sorry. I know very little about it. But you do I talk about object, object therapy, object relations, or something in your writing. You know, object relations is, is uh, uh, you know, Winnicott and a lot of other people's uh, therapy. And Klein? Uh, that comes from Klein? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, I, I'd have to go back over right. but the, uh, But I used to wonder... Uh, Sometimes I thought Marshall said, um, let's not use computers for accounting purposes. Let's use the, the computer as a global thermostat modulating all the other radio TV environments in the sensory thresholds. Could that be what he meant by analog? Or did he mean a computer or some kind of language content in, in the technology? I, I don't know. I don't want to want to uh, second guess. Him. Right, but you heard him say, go analog, not digital. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Whatever that meant. Yeah, well, there's the difference between the analog and the uh, analogy. Um, he he thought of uh, the digital as a binary structure, yeah. 
whereas the analog is uh, a continuous, uh, analogically continuous. It, it's it's more experiential. Um, it's uh, more more co connective and uh, connecting. And what uh, is analogy? Signal is con uh, continuous signal, which transmits information as a response to changes in physical phenomenon. Whereas the digital, digital signals are are discrete yeah. time yeah. signals generated by digital modulation. And um, what's analogy as opposed to analog? Um, well, yeah, we'd have to talk about that for quite a bit. All right, well, it, when he sees the book as an, anal an analogy of the eye, or an analog of the eye. That, uh, Bob, I, I, I would think of it, in, first of all, I think of digital computing as uh, individual, and I think of the uh, analog computing as uh, more tribal. Uh, but moreover, I think of the digital platform as uh, like a computer, like you think of that thing, a, a box, if you will. But analog computing is more what I would call a web platform. So when he, I think McLuhan was talking about, he's talking about analogical computing. He's really talking about a social network, what we would call social networking now. But but his use of the computer was like an air traffic controller setup. You modulate how many books the population had, where they had newspapers, where they had radio. He lays it out in Playboy, and you know people maybe didn't think he was serious, but that's how he talked about computers, not measuring how much someone paid in terms of money to someone. The digital content was alphabetic. He object. He says you're you're using the computer for to do the old stuff of seeing uh, of accounting uh, and. Uh, Pricing, whereas the world could not be priced anymore because it was a new software communism where nothing could be bought, sold, or stolen. So therefore, the computer would be used analogically as a central nervous system modulating environments. It would, it would, it would, its content would be other environments, not literacy put inside the, the computer. You get what I'm saying, Scott? Yeah, I understand what, what you're saying, but um, my own uh, knowledge is, is uh, not strong enough to really really comment a lot about it. Okay, so Michael, what do you make of what I say in relation to what you were trying to say? Um, I don't know, you'd have to repeat this. Okay, he wanted to use the computer to oh, register... device. Uh, it was like, what would, go in, what would go in the computer would be uh, how much... Uh, how many riots were there this week in Venezuela? How many this or that? Social phenomena as effects of Venezuela having as major medium as radio. So you'd see all, you'd read the news and see what's happening. And if you decided that there was too much panic going on, you would turn off the radio. So he wanted the computer to measure globally the sensory thr thresholds of cultures and countries around the world. Well, that's exactly what they're trying to get computers to do now with all of the statistical analysis and also with um, some of the things that the American military is putting in, um, in place. Um, they, they have one system where they're uh, modeling each individual and those individuals' uh, decision-makings as closely as possible with the hope that it will include um, all of the, uh, the people uh, on the planet mm. uh, eventually. It's a ridiculously ambitious and silly uh, thing that the military is proposing there. I've written a little bit about it. 
Um, yeah, that's uh, a sociological genome project rather than a human genome. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And um, and and so there, we we see all of the sexy jobs going to statisticians working with with uh, computers in terms of being able to uh, determine uh, what uh, different cultures' decisions are in terms of uh, political, economic uh, initiatives and uh, direction. Yeah, that's the iconic tactile number, which is prominent in the uh, advertising, just icons of 20th century tactile life, becoming, that's 20th century tactile, becoming the content of the 20th, 21st century moving at the speed of thought digital technology. Yeah. yeah. How how about the uh, the the uh, social uh, unrest in the Middle East uh, being a, an expression through digital media of the sociological genome project? Yeah, well, you, in other words, and it. it's, it's it's yeah. in other words, it's in a, how about it as an experiment that's top down rather than bottom up as it appears to be. Well, that's what McLuhan mixed top down and bottom up. He would recognize. That's why he could drop obsession with the secret uh, societies because he knew they were just the bureaucrats. And he knew there was bottom-up effects of TV that the bureaucrats didn't anticipate. So he'd be looking at, and he do it and take. He doesn't take today. Looking at the top-down power structure reacting to the bottom-up effects. So yeah, the Pentagon may be uh, hoiking up these problems in Egypt and Libya. You know what the real reason is? Is that they want the oil price to go up so much the uh, Middle Eastern oil, that then America can tap into its national reservoir of reserves and then sell that stuff. That's the way uh, America would get some cash. That, that's the act, actual Pentagon line there. So that's the conspiracy. But then you have the bottom-up effect of the digital twittering and tweeting, which is spreading all over the Middle East and you know, out of the control of the uh, oil-oriented bureaucrats. So both are happening. Yes, you see what but, I mean? it, 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 but yes, but was that a real bottom-up effect, or was that a... Oh, yeah, yeah, it was a bottom-up effect, yeah. Yes? But it's top-down really? because they're also using the instruments which have been produced by the, uh, the, the, the power structures, the political economic structures. Yeah. Um, I, how I approach this uh, uh, is through discussing it in terms of what I call electrocracy. Okay. Ele- Electrocracy is government by, for, and with electric and electronic instruments. That is, all public and private decisions are made directly and indirectly in terms of technological hardware and software. And electrocracy is administered by a bureaucratic xenocracy, that is, a government of telecommunicating strangers, of cyborg servo-mechanisms. And it's post-political and post-economical. Uh, as those terms and conditionals are usually defined. That, that's a pretty good definition of the Android meme. That's part of the content of what I mean by that phrase. Yeah, I, and it, I think it's, it's close. To, I think to, it's what's happening right now. It's also close to what the croakers talk about. Yeah. Of the 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 virtual. Um, but you know what it is? It is the necessary effect on power bureaucracies in the West you know, corporate sector and private sector and governmental, those are reacting to the mixed media simulation that Baudrillard discusses uh, of the Android meme. What you just described is a natural reaction by literate bureaucrats. That's how they react. 
and it's 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 also illusory and delusory. Yeah, they will and, not they will not get to a finish line that'll satisfy them. So all power relations then are determined more by the instant or real time in a trans international lottery. Uh, the That's the bottom up thing the bureaucrats can't control and top down since it's their machines that determine it. And then uh, electrocracy operates under the auspices of a radical utilitarian ideology that is post-totalitarian, whether that's thought of as fascistic, socialistic, or capitalistic, and post-anarchistic, uh, anarchistic, uh, whether altruistic, uh, utopian, or virtual. That is not to say, however, that it operates under an actual ideology. It is hyper-abstract and hypo-concrete. That is, it's like an ersatz formula uh, similar to the following, chaos theory plus complexity theory minus catastrophe theory, <laughs> etc. It is Perfect. Hence, it is hence non-ideological in any way that can be formalized by a universe of discourse. It's diasporic, diff diffusional, or monger-like ideology might be described as a perverse ecstasy paradigm, the term used to describe the ineffectual political pluralism in post-communist Hungary. A page uh, of Finnegan's Wake. This is what yeah, Finnegan's right. Wake shows us. Here comes everybody. That's, yeah. Uh, so you have the bottom-up projection by cultures of what their own fantasy. McLuhan says that dreams are a product of uh, movies, but TV evokes fantasy life. So the bottom-up can be fantasy in relation to the global technocrats. It's totally fantasy. You're right. That's right on. Um, also, electrocracy is post-sensory. Yeah. Um, sensory, I think of as uh, traditional social sensory consciousness. Post-sensory is telecommunicational sensibility. And it's also post-poetic, and poetic is traditional verbal cognitive representations. Uh, its technocultural reality can at best be characterized as personally neologic and socially autistic. In other words, an act of imagination totally void of grounding in concrete reality. Yeah, that's the tribal and technological solipsism or fantasy. No, the tribe is is much, much more grounded than what we're looking at here. So we're 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 really looking at uh, a reification where the individual is uh, identifying um, as an abstract entity and uh, determining uh, abstract uh, aspects as if they were concrete. And they that's Fox TV. The tribal is an image that people see as a ground, and they are fundamentalists about it. And each part of the world has a different technological mix to make up the fundamentalist technology they're trying to preserve. So it's not the clash of Huntington civilizations. It's a, it's a clash of different media mixes. That's right. Yeah. And, the, the, and the digital climate, they're trying to claim tribalism because tribalism yeah. is... Is that's their content? That, yeah. So they're they're bringing it into the digital because it's not existing. It's dying. Right, and the bottom up, Sheila, is the kids are going around that. They're so fragmented and autistic that they turn into a service environment in relation to the Pentagon's control of the global fantasyscape. Well, that's, yeah, right. how, how, that's how, really where our our theorizing uh, really really begins at this point. And yes, that's that's. That's where I'm hoping that we'll really be able to take off in, 
in the next file, and uh, thanks to uh, the, concerti- the the courtesy of your uh, facilitation, uh, Bob. Let's begin with that, and of course, we'll run it up and state it differently, but whatever I said there for a moment is the image of the issue, the concern, the problem, the disservice, and the service, right? That the page of Finning's Wake is what I just said. And that's what McLuhan yeah. understood. Yeah. Is, is that, Scott, are you saying that we would do this discussion in, in the next salon? Always. We always do want to move. To, that's the present. If we're, yeah. if we're a workshop, that's the issue that everybody's failing to articulate. Because because they tend to use words for it. Now, what Scott does is he scans the digital art world and gets all these great videos and whatever it is, installations he sends out every few months. That's Scott's inventory, right, Scott? That's your, taking yeah, the pulse. A little bit. It's, it's kind of what amuses me at the moment. Uh, it's I don't do any real great theorizing regarding it, but I... Well, you have a certain language. You're anti-science. What is it? Anti-art, art, oh, anti- art, art science. Art science. But we can maybe make that even more uh, fragmented and precise by overlaying the four-body model, or bringing in the five-body model is part of it. Juggling the models in relation. See, I don't know if we need to limit ourselves to art versus science. Yeah. Um. I, I don't think of it as uh, art versus science. You um, mix it up. Actually, but, science taking over art. Yeah, did you know what Marshall said in Take Today, that art will replace science and science will... Re- art will, will, will look like science and science will become more art-like. And, yeah. and the popularization of string theory or Carl Sagan, Carl Pagan, that's an example of science going into the art and being like the new Paris with a the new theory that runs the course and artists are over there doing the technical, traditional scientific work. You see what I'm saying there? Yeah. Yeah, they, they flipped on each other. And so yeah. we can, and uh, you now have the four-body environments going around those enterprises. So okay. Scott's, Scott's language is useful to see the problem, but we have to drop the language and jump over to another kind of language and then jump back to Scott's. We, we do a corpus callosum with these you could say Croker, Dobbs, and, and uh, Taylor's approach. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, may I just see if, if, if Scott can comment on those couple of questions that I had a while back, which is, uh, do you think that the, the current digital environment is responsible for the spike in autism? And also, could you expound upon the relationship between narcissism and autism? Um, well, well. Um, he was doing that, Sheila. He I, was I, doing that with all his inventory, but maybe make it a, a less technical language, Scott. Yeah, I, I yeah. Let's see if I can do that. Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, let me get this clear in my head. Um, uh, first of all, there's no known etiology for autism, although it's uh, thought that there is genetic uh, basis uh, to a lot of it and uh, there's some very promising studies. Um, uh, Secondly, it's thought or theorized by some that um, autism is just an extremely male uh, chromosomal um, uh, issue. And uh, so the more male that you get, the more left brain you get, the more autistic that you get. Um, And 
where there was a big spike at first in terms of new cases of autism, and they say that about um, uh, 50, 40, 50 percent of the new cases of autism are just uh, uh, arising because um, uh, of better uh, testing. Uh, but there is indeed a 50 to 60 degree increase, which is um, they don't know how to explain. And it's growing. Um, in the last number of years, there's been actually a 600% increase. The first time they noticed a real um, area where there were uh, a lot of autistic children was actually in the Silicon Valley. So they started looking at that point in terms of uh, uh, scientific engineering uh, backgrounds, computational software, hardware backgrounds. And they discovered that, yes, there is a tendency for the more that people are involved in that area or in specialized areas in general and analytic areas, even academic areas, the more uh, apt uh, there is to be uh, an autistic uh, child. Um, so uh, that's in terms of what was your second question again? It was about, is there a relationship between narcissism and autism? Well, the idea of narcissism is very diff uh, distant from that of autism. Um, where I got a lot of really good ideas about how to uh, conceptualize uh, autism was from Castoriadis. And he wrote uh, a book called The Imaginary Institution of Society. And uh, Castoriadis was the intellectual, the political intellectual who was exiled from France uh, because he was one of the instigators of the uprisings uh, in uh, of student the student uprisings in the late 60s. And his idea was uh, really about uh, the autistic monadality uh, that was there before. Um, uh, that 's there uh, before we have any kind of social individual now where i 'm interested in this is because the individual in a totally autonomous way in a feral state is still going to be um, genetically uh, really uh, think uh, in terms of um, an analogical kind of of, of uh, way of being uh, that's, and McLuhan knew that. He, basically, he thought of um, the, the individual as being um, analogical, and he thought that language distorted that, uh, that analogical ability in the first place. So an autistic person it can be thought of as just uh, an individual without any language, and uh, and can be closely uh, seen in terms of the natural and a uh, logical way that human beings think. Now, the way that McLuhan thought about this was um, that before you can speak, you have to be able to crawl, and uh, and you. So what you do is you learn to coordinate your hands and your legs in a, a four-part uh, way. And you have to learn to coordinate and crawl, and then you transfer that muscular knowledge, uh, that orchestration and coordination, to your uh, your your uh, the hemispheres of your brain and and the autonomic 
uh, not not only the motor system, and then also you do it in terms of your tongue and how you coordinate uh, the forms of your tongue, so uh, the way that you you form words. And McLuhan thought of the way that the the uh, tongue moved uh, as being four part in the grammarian sense. Uh, so in the sense of uh, a is to b as c is to d, and in terms of the metaphor. And he also thought it in terms of the five uh, formats of of that of of the vowel systems in uh, the in the mouth. So the a e i o u, which we see uh, all the way through uh, a lot of uh, languages in different in different uh, ways and coordinations. And he thought that this related to how the um, left hemisphere and the right hemisphere learned uh, to synchronize and coordinate and orchestrate uh, their ways of thinking. So an artist and a scientist were basically the same thing, except the scientist uh, works more uh, in the left hemisphere and then, then represses or subordinates uh, the uh, 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 the artistic aspects to the right hemisphere, and the artist tends to move in uh, the other direction. And then McLuhan thought in terms of not just the left and right brain hemisphere, but also in terms of uh, the limbic system and the spinal, uh, the spinal uh, system, and um, and in terms of of the corpus callosum, callosum and the arcuate. Fasciculus. Uh, now I'm sure I'm getting way too. Are, are people following me still? No, this yep. is awesome. This is awesome. This is great. Keep Essential. going. Okay, so you have, uh, you also have the cortexes. So there's the auditory cortex, there's the visual cortex, and there's the motor cortex. And uh, when you're producing a spoken word. You, the first step is related to Wernicke's area, which remember Gertrude Stein uh, did the the, uh, the the description of it. Wernicke's area is activated when accessing the the lexicon. Um, uh, it, it 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 interprets uh, what word is necessary. So it interprets the environment and chooses the word. Uh, that's appropriate. Then the arcuate vesiscus uh, uh, relates to the phonetic information. By the way, it connects Wernicke's area and Bronca's, uh, Bronca's area. And Wernicke is in front and Bronca's is behind. So it's, it's, it's moving between. And it has just been discovered that it is uh, much, much broader than was originally understood. Uh, it's, a, it's a much larger tissue of, of uh, neurological connections that goes um, almost through everything. And so just to say that it connects Wernicke's with Broca's is, is an inadequate description of what it does. But it really uh, takes phonetic information sent from Wernicke's area to Broca's area. And then Broca's area interprets the information received from the arcuate fasciculus uh, and transmits articulatory information to the motor cortex. Uh, in other words, it then um, uh, develops it for, uh, for broadcast, and then it sends it to the motor cortex, which uh, directs the movement of the muscles to pronounce the word. 
So all of this happens um, in the context that I was describing of learning how to coordinate and orchestrate uh, the whole human body. And then when you read a word, you go into the uh, visual cortex, which processes the information perceived by the eyes. And uh, then the second step is um, in terms of the angular gyrus, and it associates the written form of the word with the lexical entry. So um, it's I and then um, to the print uh, form. And then um, it moves uh, back to Wernicke's area, which then makes available the meaning and the pronunciation of the word. Now, if you go back for a minute to what I was saying about the three basic um, uh, 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 trance states, um, we really find that uh, a lexicon is just um, an index of all of the trance states which have been um, have been isolated or dissociated and can be reassociated by the individual, and so it's. Um, uh, when we are using words, we are moving very rapidly. When we're using words and senses, or even reading them, we're moving very, very rapidly from one trance state to another. Okay, are you following me? You're saying you move from the eye trance hypnosis to the ear trance hypnosis? Is that what you're just saying? Yeah, to the autonomic nervous system and, and then back out through the motor. You're uh, saying that only reading evokes that movement among the three trance states? No, all of, all of our use of language does. Verbal uh, language, uh, any medium? Verbal language. All, uh, when, well, why I, why I mention the reading is because it takes a particular sequence. And so you're really looking at the different way that a task is is completed when you're talking about um, reading an environment. Now, McLuhan, when he talked about reading, he talked about many, many different kinds of reading. Reading with the ear would be just different ways of listening. Uh, reading with the eye would be more forming uh, for, forming ideas out of out of out of the printed page, etc. So you're talking about uh, he used reading the way postmodernists use text. Um, yeah, I think that he did accept that he uh, still thought of the postmodernists um, as uh, really not getting the whole. The, they weren't multi. They weren't transdisciplinary. Pardon me. They weren't transdisciplinary. They stayed within the Gutenberg effect. That's right. They were into uh, deconstructive uh, processes. And he, he, he found them very amusing. He was amused that Bart, for example, was interested in his work. Uh, he didn't think that his work would be of any interest to Bart. So he was surprised. You know how we say that you know, east goes west, west goes east, in the tactile ground, every culture jumps into another culture to put on a skin for protection. And we talk about art goes towards science, science goes towards art. Well, look at the visual bias of the English and then the acoustic bias of the French. The French academics went visual with their hyper-Derridean categorization that McClure would find uh, hilarious, and the British go from uh, visual to acoustic, you know, pop culture, punk rock, and, and slight um, McClure. McClure played with that all of the time, and so did Gertrude Stein. 
and there's a connection between uh, how they how they moved in that way. In other words, McLuhan uh, got more from Stein too than has been been suggested, and I point out some of those things in my the first essay that I wrote for uh, White Pelican and. Uh, yeah, more more than the semantic. Uh, underpinnings of, of was it uh, gestures underlying semantic overlay, a lot more than that yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah. Now now what what became really interesting to McLuhan in terms of of um of um Murray Schaefer's thought in the left brain, right brain stuff was um Murray Schaefer discussing about how the individual is really a chord. Uh, you know, C H O R D, mm. the according. Do you know just that is laid out in McLuhan's 1946 essay, An Ancient Quarrel Modern America? Yes, and that goes back to John Thelwell, who I was talking about earlier in the movement from the. He's talking about it too in terms of T. S. Eliot. T. S. Eliot recognized that with uh, the metaphysical poets. Yeah, no, but the the the. Ancient Quarrel says the dialectician sees is the social engineering idea that everybody is a unit in the musical composition, whereas the rhetorical grammarian thing saw everybody as a unique chord. Something like that. That's right on. That's perfect. So he had that already in his own yeah. map. And so relate that to Long what you were just saying. And probably from his mother. Probably from, yeah. uh, from his mom going way, way, way back. Yeah, I say that his PhD was about his mother. Um, there's so much about his mother that we, you know, it's it's almost like the Bates Motel. Around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, pre- preservation of her and her ideas and everything that was going on, and how he tore his head. I mean, you know, there, there's this idea that McLuhan was uh, doing all he could to get his mother's attention even after she was dead. <laughs> is uh, is is somewhat uh, somewhat accurate, uh, but I think. Okay, so that's the anecdote. You just giving us a little anecdotal recess. Now back into your hyper technical talk here, and you were saying about McLuhan and the chord. Yeah, well, um, you know, the one one definition of health uh, is that uh, we all need to be in accord. We need to be in complete harmony, and so uh, we. He was thinking in terms of the 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 whole sensorium as being a harmonious one. And uh, uh, he pointed out to him, I think, uh, by Murray Schaefer, is that although we see one octave, in other words, one synesthetic relationship where there are seven colors and, and there are seven uh, then keys in uh, the diatonic scale, um, we actually hear ten octaves. And an octave is a doubling in frequency. So the visual spectrum in frequencies is is 400 to uh, 790, uh, where where uh, humans can hear from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz, which is 10 octaves. And so what we do. And Murray accepted that. Pardon me. You say Murray accepted what Marshall suggested. Well, I think that that was that was Marshall heard that from Murray. Oh, I see. Yeah, I'm not sure. And then um, we adopt listening positions uh, relative to what octaves that we are uh, are are listening to, and um, 
then uh, then one thing that that Murray did talk about was um, about um, the idea of of um, the uh, schizophonia. Have you heard of that expression? No. Schizophonia, and that is an unhealthy state where what you hear and what you see are unrelated, and that was uh, a term coined by Murray Schaefer, and uh, and he thought of that in a general way, way as what communicates unhealthiness, and he ex- explained that um, he coined that term uh, intending it to be a word related to uh, to, to to nervous system and also therefore was a kind of a nervous uh, word and it was related to schizophrenia. Mm. Schizophrenia, of course, is a dissociated sensibility that continually tries to associate itself but in an improper way. You've got eye-ear. Harmony is, is ear, ear, mat, ear resonating, resonating and the eye form of uh, harmony is matching. See, you can put That's the right. I, yeah. Put the two on it. Take schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is the I version of schiz of dissociation, and then schizophrenia is the visual man's interpretation of a dissociation or disease. Yeah, but really, schizophrenia is a disease of a synesthetic disorder. Right. Um, so there could be there's two different approaches to, to synesthesia, and our culture mixes up those two approaches, so we're a synesthetic response to the collective extended synesthesia. That's right. Yeah. That's an, that's what we're dealing with. That's Finning's wake again. Yeah. That's a good yeah, simple way to say what our issue is here. When you extend sense of synesthesia into a tactile interplay, extension of the corpus callosum, and then Break it up digitally. Whoa, where are you then? Yeah, you've made a total, total mess. Yeah, <laughs> so you've made it impossible for people to think in terms of any kind of uh, language or linguistic phenomenology. Yeah, uh, and it goes further than that in that you are also dro- destroying people's ability to to work in terms of any kind of dominance of any particular sense. So they're really losing the ability uh, to have a tent of focus. Um, Gertrude Stein and William James both said that um, the diseases of the future were all going to be diseases of attention. Mm. It's interesting how Marshall says that the artist writes out the effects of coming uh, communication media. Finning his wake is certainly that, but you could look at the stuttered, repeat, repetitive way Gertrude Stein is writing was talking about something will happen in the 21st century almost. Um, absolutely. She's already uh, dealing with texting and, yeah. and uh, things like that, the echolalic. Uh, echolalia is also a, uh, one of the symptoms of autism, uh, repeating, repeating uh, phrases. So the uh, surface, right? So the the surface, the service, as opposed to disservice of autism, is these kids are declaring their autonomy from the synesthetic squared and fragmented. They're, they're. I don't think that they're doing that. I think that they are are uh, not recognizing that they um, have already got a, 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 a structure which is very dissociated. And that they therefore are using the technologies um, uh, as a way, hopefully, to heal it. And um, 
uh, heal their own um, dissociated sensibility and uh, aren't uh, aren't being able to do that. Yeah, uh, so you get you get your coherence and autonomy. You've got the analog phase, and that's synesthetic and mixed up in the global theater. Then you've got the virtual synesthetic confusion and breaking up. The kid is born into this and tries to use both sides, but you're saying tends toward the digital media to create a sense of holism, but it is neither of those kinds of uh, holism. That's right, yeah. So, so, Sheila, what do you say at this point from what you're hearing, apply it to whatever level you're wondering about? Maybe she dropped off. I hope not. <laughs> okay, we, we've got, uh, can we have a bit of a roll call? Who wants to admit they're here? Can you, uh, are you here 8-bit? Maybe we're just alone. <laughs> People no, have uh, really, I've really been, tired I've been, of me. I've been uh, voy- uh, voyeuring here in the background, Bob. God. That's another Scott. That's Scott Norris in, in uh, uh, Portland. Anybody else? We'll have you uh, come. I'm here, Bob. Okay, Carol, uh, artist in New York. Uh, is Andrew Crystal Andrew here? Crystal from Auckland, New Zealand. Yes, I'm here. Okay, we got some smart Michael people Andrew. here. Hey, Bob, come on. It's Richard Bipple. Richard Bipple, yeah. Okay, you guys, yeah, start querying, start querying Scott. Um, fragmented is obsolete as a result of everything being draped in uh, technology that can be indexed. So really it's just a user interface that's required kind of like an Akashic archive. That's Facebook. I see you mixing several body landscapes there. Yeah, well, you know, in the informal formal formality, what else can you do other than call it a disease? <laughs> <laughs> okay, sounds like Andrew's got something to say. No, no, I think that was great. That was a great question. I'm, I'm happy to back the uh, informal, formal formality. Oh, oh, Scott, are you tweeting, uh, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. No. We're yeah, what, what's happening right now, Scott, is that he's been, Andrew's been listening and sending out Twitter messages to whoever can take it about all the topics we're talking about. You might give, a, give an inventory, say, five you've done, Andrew. No, no, no. Seriously, there's, uh, this conversation for the last uh, two and a half hours has been uh, changing five topics at a rate of every 30 seconds. Uh, <laughs> 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 We're miming the environment the kids got to deal with. Well, I, I have something I'd like to jump in. Um, the, what is the uh, percentage of children that are uh, exhibiting autistic uh, tendencies now? Probably increasing. Well, it's increasing, yeah, but what's the percentage? I, I, I don't know exactly what it is anymore. Uh, I'm sorry. What do, you, what do you suppose? I think it's one in every hundred. Yeah. So uh, what's interesting to me is that we're, we're talking about this fragmentation of synesthesia and so on as being the environment, environment in, which kids in, which are, are, in which kids are having to respond and grow up and, and it's creating this autism. In them. But we're talking about one out of a hundred children. So no, but I'm talking about not clinical, that's clinical autism, but when you talk about social autism, you're talking about uh, people that are uh, uh, habituizing uh, autistic behaviors, but they're not actually clinically autistic. So those problems are uh, things like social withdrawal and problems relating to peers and adults. Uh, lack of eye contact, uh, language de- developmental delay, echolalia, repeating phrases, 
um, uh, unnaturally obsessive behavior, fixation on the computer, so-called computer addictions, uh, repetitive body movements, uh, anxiety, rocking, twiddling, spinning, attention problems that are atypical for their age group, uh, uh, little professor attitudes, uh, uh, repetitively reciting facts, uh, Exceptional clumsiness, uh, uh, difficulty with motor coordination, uh, and difficulty particularly in playing imaginatively or symbolically, not being able to enter into pretend play. Well, I suppose so we could say probably 100% of children exhibited <laughs> one of those tendencies. Well, that sounded like a Cialis ad. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, but we're beginning to get um, actual, you know, Susan Greenfield. Uh, is written tomorrow's people how 21st century technology is changing the way we think and feel and then also in 2008 the quest for identity in the 21st century and and she's been getting a lot of flack uh, regarding it because um, uh, they're saying that there's uh, that there is no uh, no good uh, data for determining that say kids that play uh, video games are are really badly more badly off uh, for it. But then we get uh, people who are uh, recognized by the mainline thinkers, people like um, Sherry Turkle, uh, who is uh, writing... Uh, Technology about, Alone with us. Yeah, te- Alone Together and uh, Simulation and its Discontents. And, uh, you know, these th- building on her 1984 book, you know, The Second Self, Computers and the Human Spirit. Yeah, she was one of the McLuhan speakers that the embassy brought in the consulate in New York a few years ago, uh, mixed with one of the universities, that series, the McLuhan series. Uh, didn't seem to be too good what she uh, presented. What, would you critique her or do you uh, value what she's done? Um, I, I, I have only uh, read a couple of her books, uh, Life on the Screen and The Second Self, and I right away wrote her off way back then. Of course, yeah. she may have improved a good deal, uh, but uh, has have brightened up. But uh, I thought she was a, a long, long way behind. And How about this, Scott? You, you can see her as the token hand wringer. She gets this yeah. job at Harvard and just sort of worries about what's going on and writes books yeah. about it, right? Yeah, and is a nice person and goes yeah. about yeah. it in a nice, representative, academic way. Uh, I, I I don't know. There's also a new book that's been put out by a psychiatrist, and, and it's uh, it's on um, virtually you. It's called the dangerous powers of the E personality. And so there's more and more uh, mainstream books which are being devoted to this this uh, to to what I would call social autism. Right now, McLuhan would not see just services or just disservices. There's got to be services in this in relation to the old media. Yeah, there's well, be, and there's disservices. I wanted, uh, YouTube. To, I wanted to frame that just slightly different to get a response, which is that uh, I tend to believe that if we, when you truly understand the problem, you'll find the solution there. In, uh, That's right. McClone said that the solution's always in the problem. How well, do you, you see? Do you see a solution to to this uh, to on the horizon? In the problem, in the problem, the in way the it problem. is now. Well, I think these kinds of conversations that we're having right now uh, 
work uh, a long ways making. Uh, you know, my my ideas have always been pretty well accepted by um, you know the, the the people directly around me. It was really when they be, uh, they contrasted with institutional points of view be, that I began to have problems. Uh, and uh, those yeah. are the structures of the android meme. Most of those institutions are just simulations. We know that the structures cause, causing vibrating everything apart and causing the problems. So they're not going to they're not going uh, to no, The android meme will not just talk to people. It encourages interpeople interaction, but those are digital people. See? So if you take you know, Scott, representing the, the analog tribal values on human scale, can get agreement or interest on, you know, among his neighborhood. But to enter the other landscapes is another matter. Okay. So, like, um, I'm just going to throw this out there. Um, the NAPS, okay, like, I look at it all in terms of what I call the Napsterization of... Uh, of our of our culture in the West, and and by that I mean like basically what happened in Egypt and continues to happen as a result of smartphones. We saw a glimmer of that or a flash of that in the most pronounced way with the music industry with Napster, which was created probably by a 19-year-old kid named Sean Fanning that I'm sure exhibited at least one of the characteristics that you rattled off there that the institutions mm -hmm. would qualify as being defined as autistic. So that destroyed the music industry. Now, it destroyed it right away. It took them eight years to acknowledge it, and now it's essentially gone. That's what's going on in the remaining parts of the world that are getting online. And essentially, once everybody's in concert like that, they'll realize that the previous media, the previous society has been surrounded, as McLuhan would say, by the current Present now, which is being facilitated digitally, but of course, tetradically is retrieving all manner of tactile analog constructs. This is inevitable. All the things to do with institutions um, that don't like this person or don't like that person, if they don't like them today, they'll pun, reverse, like them tomorrow, just like mm -hmm. Citizen Kane wasn't... Citizen Kane wasn't liked. Now, it's fucking mm -hmm. loved. And it's the mm -hmm. same shit over and over and over, as they say. No, no, wait, wait, wait. No, same as it ever was. Of, that's the artistic condition, but the conditions change, so you can actually map which ones will get retrieved in that constant pattern, and why that would uh, lead to retrieval of other kinds of people under a different environment or atmosphere. See, that's the figure ground you do. But it's See, the constant... McLuhan said that the figure never changes, only the ground changes. And man is the figure. The ground is the inventions. And according to the who won't be named, there's no finish line. Right. Well, McLuhan said that. So the last so, line, yeah, the yeah. last line of cultures are business is there is no finish line. Between when you mention the guy that can't be talked about, right, because he'll come in yeah. and what he represents, I look at that as that's the draping of technology on the infrastructure that's always there that people call spirituality, and now we can just sort of, you know, scientifically see that infrastructure more and more and more and but more. But what does it mean to say scientifically? What does that mean? That means you don't, know, you don't know why the... That scientifically means you have no idea why the phenomenon is happening, but you can measure it, and you don't even know how you're able to do that. But you can well, the do it. La the last line of Laws of Media says that we're moving into an unchartable, unmeasurable situation. So that right, means science won't work. In the definition of science as it's used in that context. 
Yeah, the way you used it. Well, I'm only using it as a contrast to what it's going to eventually mean, which we have no words for. Uh, what were what? Um, That's that broker's area. Stuff. The actions of the Android meme, statistically, whatever all that electro electrocratic, electrocratic, bradics, uh, technocrats were doing, is the science. It's I agree. Done every you. day through the through the Nielsen ratings or the ratings. That's science. Would the you agree with yeah. that, Scott? Anthropomorphizing um, us. Yes, anthropomorphizing the virtual unvisualizable. What do you say about what we said so far, Scott Taylor? Well, I, I, I like, I, I like the, the direction that the conversation has gone now, and uh, I, 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 I just want to hear more about it. I want to hear more about what you guys are saying. Okay, good. So you'll, sit, you'll, I, you'll sit I on the sidelines for a minute. Here. I want to be a patent a little bit, but not... <laughs> you want to be a what? A patent a little bit, but not not too much. A patent? I'm flipping. A patent? Oh, a patent! Right, right, right. Yeah. So you're going to sit sit on the sidelines and observe the effects you've made on us. That's what you oh, want to do little. for a little. But uh, but don't leave. You're going to be retrieved. Oh, okay. I'm leaving. I'm listening. Okay. So so uh, Andrew's tweeting. Uh, Michael Edmonds, can you say something to what me and Bipple are saying, or what Scott Norris is saying? It's an honor to be in a conversation with Scott Norris. <laughs> what do you know about Scott? No, I, I mean, I, I know the Bob archive. That's what I know about Scott. Oh, yeah, he, he did that. He did that. Yeah. So, Scott, go bring, since Michael Evans is either gone, Sheila's gone, their time's run out, whatever, uh, Scott, bring in your issue so we can respond. Again, bring it back, what you're trying to say. You're talking to me? Scott Norris. Oh, Okay. Um, well, I, I, I don't, uh, you know, what I want to, you know, I've always wrestled with some of the terminology you use, Bob, which, you know, and it's meant to provoke. Uh, you, if, you, if, you under, if, you, if, you, if you think you can just put it, understand it and put it away, <laughs> probably not useful tool. But I'm yeah. wondering what, uh, Scott, how, do you, this word Android meme, do you feel that's a comprehensive term for what we're talking about here? Do you? How would you? Do you relate to that term? Do you, Do you find it uh, well, slightly objectionable, is, or do you is, find it uh, acceptable? Scott, what you uh, Scott Norris, he's he's answering. Go ahead, Scott Taylor. Um, yeah, one of my my uh, arch enemies is Richard Dawkins, <laughs> and uh, so the whole idea of a mem uh, bothers me. Um, uh, I think that 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 the problem with mem is that it doesn't resonate as close with the idea of experience uh, and as, it, as it should. And I think if something it culturally is part of your experience, then indeed it will be epigenetically uh, uh, moved, moved forward. Also, I, I dislike you know, uh, Dawkins' ideas about the selfish gene. And I don't think that uh, that 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 genes are necessarily selfish. I don't think I think selfishness is something that um, uh, is is a historical con concept. Well, I I like um, I, I kind of like the idea of the meme, uh, but uh, but I've always found I've always felt that Dawkins really has a deep grievance, and that he's playing he his grievance is what motivates him, and his grievance is against people that have religious belief systems. Yeah, and so he's just trying to be a, an anti-environment to that, or you know, like the kid that wants to rebel yeah, I, against. I don't mind that because I'm kind of anti-religious uh, too, uh, in terms of the institution. 
but I'm pro-spiritual and I'm pro-empathetic uh, and I think there are mere, uh, mere neurons and I think they're genetically placed and I think that uh, people uh, uh, re- relate empathetically to one another and genes relate empathetically to one another and so on and so forth. But anyway, the, we're getting off of... Hey, no, Scott, uh, both Scotts. Here is Scott Taylor writing me on March 31st. He raised some really good points. He says, hi, Bob. Is your perception-conception of the Android meme the technological bastardization, profanation, and falsification of Tyard's Christosphere? Then he has Tyard, subset of what um, Tyard was referring to. The berry sphere, in brackets, core. The lithosphere, earth. Hydrosphere, water. Atmosphere, air. Biosphere, organic matter. Neurosphere, thinking matter, and crystal sphere, divine matter. So you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, or eight spheres. And then he says, hence the internet is a false omega point or coming together of collective consciousness. In brackets, unconsciousness, extension. Then in brackets, repression, ablation, auto amputation. So he's saying, uh, coming together, collective consciousness, blah, 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 into a mock black hole or pretend void, an avoidance of the void, into the opposite or reversal of the spiritual. Now, in my chart, I have air, fire, earth, and water. I don't know if you've looked at my chart, but I can... Oh, I haven't. Yeah, I can apply. You've got the air is atmosphere, water is hydrosphere, earth is lithosphere, the core is the berry-sphere, thinking matter. Newest sphere would be maybe analog electric media, and crystal sphere is what's happening right now, but our language and interpreting of it, our perception of it, would see it mostly as a bastardization of the crystal right. sphere. But we could see the, the positive or whatever you call the comprehensive, the integrated, the retrieval of the organic in this present situation. That's McLuhan as a poetic role, did what, Mar- what Barry wrote a book on, Barry Nevitt, the communication ecology. There was an extension of the last line of... I think it's the essay on man by Alexander Pope, whatever is, is right. Now, that can be seen as a, a platitudinous, uh, silly um, denial. But let's say that Marshall is looking at what is happening is always being balanced, our unconscious ecological uh, harmony. What could be the services of the Android meme if you lay out it as a disservice? And what, you know what I mean? That's the way I like to use McLuhan, to look at the perfection of yeah. the moment. Okay, I'm beginning to get better what you've been trying to to tell me. Uh, Yeah. Okay, I will then to stimulate your next paragraph, you said, to put it poorly, I think of the black hole not as something which eliminates light, but which focuses, refocuses, or generates slash regenerates light. It's not simply a recycling of light, but a new invention of light. Now, there's a good point, a new invention of light. There's the newness that the Android means bringing in. Each new invention posits a new universe-universality. In one description of the dynamics at the core of the black hole, a theorist points out that only light that is moving exactly veridical, that doesn't mean, you don't mean vertical there, do you, Scott? Veridical. No, I don't, there, there I don't mean, I mean truthfully to the center of oh, the ver- black veracity. hole. Oh, veracity. Right, right. Uh, moving exactly veridical to the center of the black hole is absorbed into the black hole. That's what one theorist says. All other light glances off of the event horizon. But if one could hypothetically look down the shaft of that vertical, not veridical, but vertical light, then one would see into the singularity of singularities manifested at the center of the black hole. 
you're saying that you would see into the singularity. Not what you would see, but see That's into. Right. Well, there was the idea that you create a wormhole at the center of a black hole. And in that wormhole, there would be a universe, a new, a, a, a new universe created, which would be uh, uh, related to that singularity. The singularity uh, itself would be kind of the seed for the new universe. So it's the idea that the Big Bang uh, happened uh, as a result of a singularity moving outward uh, into uh, the new time-space continuum that was made available to it. So, but then, then, then there's the idea that at the center of each singularity there's a black hole, and so in that, that there's another seed and a, more, and a further seed and a further seed. And so, uh, uh, theoretically, you could look right down through uh, uh, an infinity of, of singularities. Now, that's what you say. Your next sentence. One would be able to see as if into a mirror, which didn't reflect, but resonated singularity into singularity into singularity. That is not into a hall of infinite regress, but into a multidimensional wave of infinite egress beyond what we think of as the ordinary time-space continuum, which orders our perception conception. So the universe of universes is a black hole dash white hole quantum foaming, utilizing matter slash antimatter and dark matter, etc. ad infinitum. Then you say the Internet would seem to be a human attempt to do the same, but the mechanics at the vanishing point of the Internet does not provide for the generation of further speculation or reality time space, but the avoidance of speculation or reality time space, no, the avoidance of speculation hyphen orality, no, but the avoid, I'm going to do that again, the generation of further speculation hyphen orality, then time hyphen space, but the avoidance of speculation hyphen orality, time hyphen space altogether. Hence, our technology has become an extension of our numbness and nullification. The Internet, far from being of universal application, takes apart what the black hole would put together and truly extend. That, it, that is, it is a scientific, in quote, scientific instrument which deconstructs its own premises. Now, of course, greater human art science will, I hope, counter this toward better comprehension of what is called vacuum physics, or zero-point energy, or the Buddhist void, or yes, perhaps even the crystal sphere. Then you say the technocultural meme is oxymoronically represented by the Internet is a departure from ideas regarding the logos, radio, ratio, or interval, or word, etc. Now, that's what you've been talking about. It, it smashes the organic tactile. Now, what is... Um, uh, I'm the, old. <laughs> that, that's worth standing. That's worth a standing ovation. All that. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's, that's Scott's so writing. You're, yeah, you're 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 celebrating what Scott wrote. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's so uh, the service in that might be the way I the way uh, Scott was describing some things there about five minutes ago. The the seed inside the new universe inside the bunch of egress of singularities. Remember that thought, Scott Taylor. Yeah. That, to me, is what I call the extension of non-physical. That would be the new. And who we can't mention is, is, has, says that it is made possible because of the Internet, because of the digital landscape, the freedom, the, the lack of controllability, the, void, the voiding of void of it opened up a new possibility that couldn't be controlled. So, uh, this is a diametric reversal of what you were just saying in those right. words, Scott. Is that oh, that's right. right. That's right. That's the point that I was going to make. Yeah, what I'm saying is I the love exact this reversal. Flipping back and forth between. Yes, we have to flip back and forth. Uh, you, you have the Dobbs, Croker, Taylor, 
who else do we want? And, and Sherry Turkle, you have your jest of honor. You know, you got the Dobbs, Croker, Taylor, Sherry Turkle flipping going on. You, you see what I'm saying, Tara? That's, well, let me read Sherry Turkle's work before you have her on, though. <laughs> oh no, no, no! I'm just we just you you quote her. That's enough. We only need a few words. It's inadequate, but it represents a certain meme or a certain stability uh, that for the rearview mirror. But you you oscillate quadraphenically or tetradically the way you approach the arrival at the new seed in the voided void. Right. Yeah, you've got it. That's really nice. Thank you. I'm glad we're communicating, and I'm glad the rest of you guys are there, too. To witness it. We have witnesses. Yeah. <laughs> we have matched. <laughs> so, okay, Scott, now you then mix it up. You will alter what we just established by your input, or Bipple's input, or Andrew Crystal, or Mike Lemons. Like, you will now alter it. Proceed. Who, anybody? Uh, anybody who gets yeah. in first. I'll go last. <laughs> that's that's right. There's no finish line. That's why capitalism is not possible anymore. There's no finish line. Nobody can be the last person. Yeah. No. I mean, okay, okay, okay. Well, there's this 12-year-old who um, there's this website called Slashdot, and it kind of is like a um, a technology aggregation site. It's got its its tagline is News for Nerds, stuff that matters. And on there, I found this link to a 12-year-old who uh, redefined Einstein's theory of relativity. He's got tons of videos. He's on YouTube. The account is called Math Boy's Mom. His name's Jake. Anyway, he mentioned uh, black holes and white holes last week, and you know I saw the movie Black Hole when I was his age, but that's as far as I really understood about it. And um, from what he said, black hole takes everything in, white hole shoots everything out. The wormhole... Yeah, so, so in my opinion, as you were, Bob was reading what you wrote to him on my birth date, um, the black hole could be the left or the right hemisphere, the white hole could be the left or the right hemisphere, whichever one you want, I'm sure they switch. The corpus callosum is the wormhole. The curved universe is kind of like um, the singularity that joins both hemispheres. The internet allows communication of sentient discarnate, equaling non-physical. The misinterpretation of numbness is complex baby talk, through, um, through, where silence is the most refined version, which could be like, you know, whatever you want to call it, telepathy or whatever. However, just on, in the New York Times, I think, uh, on April 2nd, there's a video on YouTube right now. And this is where we're painting the invisible because the technology is available to everybody to get these random moments that clearly institutions are not nimble enough to even process, let alone capture. It's got two children talking to each other, two twin brothers that are 18 months talking to each other for two minutes in baby talk. But you can yeah. see through the gestures and stuff, there's a communication going on, but the archetypes that they're resonating with, they can't possibly um, articulate in a way that we can possibly, you know, quickly reference. But you can tell that it's happening. And um, they're creating, spontaneously creating a language of, that uh, only encompasses two people. But but it's like the idea, like, you know, I remember once, you know, where do, our, where do we get our inspiration from? What frequency are all of us as, quote-unquote, God's antenna resonating with to even articulate through all the different areas in our brain? Broke as area was my, my uncle's band's name. But when we make the editing process to determine what I'm saying right now in the lexicon palette of words in my vocabulary that I'm saying to you through this discarnate state as I 
stand no. here in the, you know, all that crap. You're, you're presenting a nano pattern. Those kids are having a nano language, you know, and tiny, tiny. This is a nano meeting here. Yeah. Okay. And the E equals MC square means the TV landscape inflates any little tiny community into infinite mass for, you know, a few minutes. So uh, Carolyn just showed me that the 12-year-old boy you're talking about was autistic and bigger Einstein IQ, which is all nano categories that don't mean anything. But for an effect, for a few seconds, it's a nano supernova. So that's any fact, you know, sound bite, fact bite, is a nano explosion under supernova level among other nanos, whether they hear it or not. So I'm thinking how tiny this is. And when, and when you talk about it, it does become a huge story, but there's a thousand huge stories depending on what medium you're looking at. Hey, so the, the establishment becomes an afterimage of a thought pattern or a nano pattern, and Obama is a nano meme. That's what the Android meme refers to. It's an afterimage of patterning, and it's, it's, just, it's the one that's considered the largest. Right, right, right. That's, that's your idea of how we have no association for, like, we have no face for it, so it's the White House, and that's like, yeah. you know, the whole George Bush arguing amongst his parts, go shopping, I have a job <laughs> to do for my industrial meme. Now, yeah. when you said, you, I like what you said five minutes ago about the, the attempt that the boy story is an attempt to visual, no, the little kids talking, the, the twin babies, that they, that was an attempt to visualize the chip landscape. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's really, that's where the focus has to be. Well, the focus is already there. Yeah, well, it's already make progress on it now, which we are. No, no, no. I wouldn't are. use those words. I wouldn't okay, use the sorry, words. Yeah. Just coming up with a pattern that gives you poise for a few hours is all that's required. Yeah. We're all forced to be. McLuhan says TV drives everybody into their bosom. They all become meditative. Okay, that's under the you know, ancient organic tactile extension. How do you get... Uh, poise in your bosom when everything is so fragmented, as I said last week, you don't even exist. You can't even begin to establish what you are, and there's nothing to compare to. That's the social autism that we've come to that Scott Taylor finds difficulty in how to respond to. Right, Scott? My only answer to that is the asymptote idea. Asymptote, yeah, that's the no-finish line. You know the asymptote, Mr. Taylor. Well, I'm beginning to understand it. I get the idea. Yeah. Right. And we engage, this is a religious, a spiritual, or a, a communal, an attempt for analogy just for people to be tender focusing on something. Yeah. That's what we're doing right here. I love it. I'm with yeah. that. Um, can, can, can you guys email me so I get you on uh, my uh, email list? Uh, my uh, email number is uh, lowercase fsp. F like Frank. F yeah, like Frank, Frank, Sam, Tom. Lloyd, Lloyd Scott Taylor, uh, 44 at hotmail.com. And I'll send you my anti-blog blog. and, and Right. Uh, we can use it. There's lots of great text. I mean, what Scott writes is like, you know, Scott Norris is responding. He's talking to what I'm talking about, or he's recognizing whatever it is. I mean, no one would understand, uh, if you didn't have our background, what the heck Scott Taylor's talking about, maybe. But uh, he makes interesting equations. Uh, I could read some of them. But, so that's what you're saying, Scott. You're not leaving us right now. You're just in transit saying, here's a nano email for nano response to later nano patterns. 
I'm an old guy. I'm getting really exhausted here, and I'm getting really excited, too. And the more excited I get, the more exhausted. Well, we'll stay with it, Scott. Maybe you yeah, go beyond you the... You're freaking me out. You're, what'd you say? We're freaking you out? Burning me out, you know. Burning? Uh, What's that verb? Burning. Burning. Oh, yeah, but that's uh, that's natural. Yeah, it is. This is a natural. We're having a good time. You're getting burnt out, or you feel like you're having a nano. These are nano feelings. Supernova. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's a new word. Like the black hole, sometimes in your conversation is is a an okay situation, and then other times it's not. You play with the the culture's interpretation of a black hole and the meanings of black, and then you play with that and say there's positive. I mean, who knows what your what your your what emotional I, feeling plays here? And and you guys would just love this. Look up uh, cosmic commode. That's uh, cosmic and then C O M M O D E. Right. Cosmic commode. And there's two guys that write about it, and one of them's called Phil Mayhew. Uh, and the other one is Martin Lass, and uh, they talk a lot about black hole, white hole, and uh, uh, about uh, a, a larger system, and um, that's what I've been um, looking at uh, lately. Um, I've been thinking of writing a book on uh, the culture of the black hole. Uh, I w- gave a keynote address at an international conference in Xi'an, China, uh, last July, which was uh, on um, how artists de- depict um, uh, the black hole and white hole. Do you remember that poet, the street poet Milton somebody in Toronto, the older guy in the 70s? Did you ever encounter him? Milton? I don't know. You'd have to give me his full name. I don't remember. Yeah. Anyways, he was an older guy. He was the on the street version of uh, Barry. You know, Barry was the respectable poet. Barry... Oh. Somebody who... I love uh, Barry. We really miss him. Callahan, was it? I don't know. Yeah. And then and so then you have uh, Milton. I went to one of his talks. Ian Arlott took me there. And he went on. This would be in 1980-81. He ranted on about nothing but a death culture. He was, you know, inventorying death everywhere. He was describing the the negative meanings of black hole culture. Now. Yeah. Now, when, we, when you set up a dialectic black, black hole, white hole, we know that's the literate, the dialectical method, and it's a tiny little game, and then you have the rhetorical grammarian looking at the fringe awareness, and then you have this TV show, Fringe, and then you have uh, the nanoization of everybody in relation to each other. Those four factors go into what the word black hole evokes. For me, and you can go on. Yeah. yeah, you could go on, and you could you could develop it, and it, it leads to no conclusion, or you could drop it, and not have a conclusion. It's how well, yeah. it was just a way of organizing thought. That's right, which is obsolete. The organizing of thought. That's why I say Android meme. Since we live at the speed of thought, then a meme means a collective thought. And right. that is not possible to establish anymore. So the simulation or the robotic presentation of a uh, some kind of coherent patterning—that's what I mean by Android meme. And that is—that's rearview mirror. That's the establishment. <laughs> Android meme. Yeah. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. And so then we are are, are nano everybody's finning and easing all over the place, and yet trying to fit it back into. Food for the for the chemical body's stomach. 
That's called a job. How do you how do you register that in this nanoizing situation? So so Scott, when you Scott Taylor, when you ransack scientific research and scientific um, landscapes like the supernova and the black hole, this that's a put on for you to do your art science satire, right? That's right. It is a put on. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you're right. It's presented very you you even get grants writing this stuff. That's right. I, uh, that's right. They don't get the satire in it. Um uh, yeah, I I I'm a violent virulent satirist uh, with a savage sense of humor. Uh, the more that you know me, the more that you would descend into that kind of. Uh, That's right. Yeah, you. But, but uh, very few people would pick that up, Bob. Yeah. Do you scan the uh, scientific research um, places on the internet to find these things that you cite in the article I read today, um, the latest one? Do you scan and look at those and then fit them into a prearranged formula? No, it's not prearranged. Um, I'm I'm using them as uh, vehicles to to think with, to stimulate thought, and all that sort of thing. I I I, I am trying to get some kind of a, a conspectus or general understanding about what's going on. Uh, most of the time, although I've had you know really great great friends, uh, most of the time I've been looking for uh, this kind of universe of discourse, though. So, uh, uh, that you're that that we have here tonight. Yeah, and yeah. So I'm really delighted to. Well, you've been part of it all along, anyways. It's just the internet allows people to find each other, eventually, faster. Yeah. Well, you 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 know, it was Michael, bless his heart, who uh, asked me if uh, I minded if he got me in touch with with you, Bob, and and so uh, so bless him. Right. I forgot that Michael found you. How did he do that? Well, I was at a centenary uh, uh, conference. For Sheila. For all oh, that's right. It was the Sheila Watson thing, right? Yeah. Right, which was maybe two falls ago. Two falls ago, that's yeah. right. November 2009 or something like that. So, well, I've been extremely busy since then, Bob, but uh, now uh, I'm semi-retired, and so I'm able to... So what is subtle? What was that group about? Subtle technologies. Subtle technologies uh, is a festival that's been on for uh, 14 years. It has uh, it's a colloquium of um, artists and scientists. What we do is we uh, feature a symposium uh, each year where we have Nobel laureate quality speakers uh, coming from all over the world, uh, artists and scientists, to discuss uh, topics of mutual interest. And then we uh, try to get people into doing various collaborations, so art-science collaborations. But one of the reasons why I've uh, stepped down is that uh, it's moving more and more and more into the scientific and further and further away from the art and the humanities. And so, and those, the the pleasure you get interacting with us was not arrived at in that group at any point for um, you. Well, no, it, it it was, but there wasn't the kind of debate going on. There was with individuals like. Uh, Art Clay, who I mentioned earlier, yeah. and I hope that we can get him in on this conversation too. You'd really love him, and uh, also Johannes Beringer, who I mentioned earlier. Right. So yeah, these guys could be part of it because they may have wanted to talk to you about your language, and they did, but they have other pressures. But you can tell them, well, we're doing it here. 
if, yeah. they, if they want to pursue it. But the uh, so the subtle tech. What did the phrase subtle technology refer to? Because that's what William Irwin Thompson used that phrase. Yeah, I don't. Know. It, our founder was a wonderful man called Jim Ruxton, uh, who's one of my dearest best friends, and uh, he uh, he was the one who decided uh, that. And um, it at first when it was first formed was to see the relationship uh, between technology and uh, spirituality uh, as uh, it is artistically uh, developed and de- depicted. Uh, so uh, and it, it's developed uh, from 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 there. Subtle technology uh, really is kind of a reference to all of the invisible uh, connections that there are between different uh, specialties and topicalities and and uh, ways of, of of being. Yeah, and the internet, the Android meme, has extended that, has made that. That spiritual aspect we call spiritual as an environment, and therefore it has, but it has disservices. What it, what do you guys mean by spirituality? What was the uh, accompanying image for that? Um, it actually went back to uh, notions of the original uh, works of art. Um, you know the the Cycladian goddesses and the the um, the Venus of Willendorf. And do you know this is. This is literally William Irwin Thompson stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know that that's where Jim got it from. Um, the the re- reason why it was started, too, was partially because of an article that I wrote on art science uh, in, in, in Cyberstage magazine. And what I did is I, I uh, in a very angry way, said that all scientists and all artists were going to be electrocuted and that the ways that they were going to be electrocuted was through uh, telecommunications, electrocratic uh, means. Um, and uh, so uh, Jim and uh, Pam, the founders, uh, both uh, decided that that was uh, much too negative uh, view and thought that they would try to present it in a in a more uh, positive light, and of course that was right up my alley too. What to present? What the fate of art and science is more so positive? How art and science were coming together at, at the speed of light. Okay, I, I see that. Uh, that's the Thompson quote in my chart. That's one interpretation, or response, or celebrated by the Android meme. The Android meme would support what you're doing. That's why it's going to go into science or stay around. You create a successful institution, which means it's a failure in your terms. Well, it certainly turned out that way. Um, yeah, but but you know, then I, I don't want to put it down either. I mean, it no, no, we're not. Ju- we're just saying, look, everybody ends up a success or fossilized an institution, yeah. and that's not the uh, comprehensive way to deal with the present. Well, I loved uh, Churchill's definition of success as moving from one fa- failure to another enthusiastically. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. And Zappa said the same thing. Yeah. Frank Savage. So the so when you talk, are you, is your Buddhism? Do you bring Buddhism as your ground or meditation or those New Age activities to a solution for yourself? Um, no, I don't think of myself as as Buddhist. Uh, I think of myself as embracing. Uh, I think of myself as trans spiritual, um, uh, just so Buddhist. Um, uh, 
I, 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 I'm really interested in how notions of the Buddhist void resemble very closely a lot of the uh, ideas uh, of, about the black hole, and that's uh, that's why I got interested in that. But for a long time, I mean, I you know go back to early Buddhist texts. What I've discovered uh, lately is that Chinese thought, uh, philosophy, and whatnot is a lot closer to the way that I perceive things for a long, long time, which, of course, is McLuhan's idea about the... the, the uh, Organic tactile. Yeah. yeah. yeah see, the right. Buddhist culture is the manuscript version starting to move individual space, the tactile eye or tactility. So the reason the Chinese... Is, Marshall said in the, in the 60s that China was the ground for everything. Yeah. That's tactility. In cultural terms. And now you have the simulation of tactility, and then the breakup of tactility means that you cannot stay in Buddhism or any of those reference points in science, art, religion, culture, sports heroes, or even celebrating McLuhan. That does not hold up to the void, the continuous changing, nanoizing of the void, which you're fully aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so is Art Clay. Uh, Art Clay's done a lot of work in, in China. And, uh, of course, uh, the Chinese uh, language and um, the Chinese um, uh, characters are all completely uh, analogical. And, but there's a big problem happening there um, in a literary magazine in 1916. It's a magazine called New Youth. Um, two of the critics there uh, talked about uh, the same kind of, of getting rid of analogy and um, metaphor, uh, uh, classical illusions, and getting rid of all illusions. Is in, that Fenelosa? Uh, no, uh, it, it's a fellow, two fellows, one's called Hu Xing, uh, H-U-S-H-I-H, and the other is Chen Hsuan Tiang. C H apostrophe I E N H S U A N dash T apostrophe U N G. And they're talking to their culture when they say that. They're talking to their culture extremely. In, in uh, you know they're very well known in China, and uh, so they're saying the same thing now as as uh, Bacon did, and they're trying to standardize much more and make much more literal. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the Chinese characters. That's McLuhan's prediction. He said in the 60s, China would go left hemisphere. Yeah, Art Clay calls uh, China the new Wild West. Yeah, yeah. It's the new USA. And it, I've got it, a question it, it, for you, Scott. What's left when you get rid of all illusions? Yeah, well, that's the problem, is that you've destroyed uh, uh, our, our cognitive ways of, of thinking. Uh, you get a very what, when you get rid of all illusions for the most part what you get is is a, a form of writing that's uh, very similar to the nominalization of Gertrude Stein and, and Ernest Hemingway or Joyce Finneganese uh, no Joyce is fabulous I mean you know he's it's like Joyce is trying to preserve uh, as many uh, illusions as he possibly can. <laughs> Could use a Noah's Ark, yeah. Could you mention that reference to the, the book, Removing Metaphor in China, again? Um, well, it's, it's a literary magazine, and it's called New Youth. Well, uh, back in 1916, did you say? 1916, 1917. 
Yeah, and it's very, very influential in terms of all literary production uh, afterwards, and it's still uh, still referred to uh, a great deal. What was um, the name of the yeah, one of the, the gentlemen guy? haven't gone to China? I really suggest you do. You'll feel right at home. Uh, it's 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 an amazing place. Yeah, Buzz Coastal lives there. Yeah, Buzz Coastal makes our YouTubes. You you can you know do trips with him on there. But yeah, China is uh, got all worlds. McLuhan's four worlds: the uh, undeveloped world, the advanced capitalist world, the Russian bureaucracy world. And the first and the discarnate world all happening rampant raging right. It's actually the only functioning part. It is the global village or the global theater. In a lot of ways, you're you're right. Yeah. But, you know, the higher you go on the power hierarchy there, the more corrupt that it gets. Uh, and so everything, all the problems we have with China, uh, are certainly evident at that level. Um, but underneath there, they're both they're they're like. Ex- Extremely, extremely strong, focused children, um, and uh, uh, when you make that kind of contact uh, with them, um, it's it's incredibly exhilarating. Uh, I have uh, now a lot of uh, a lot of Chinese friends that I, I I really love. So you have to trick them in order to actually get them to evolve. Um, they still are. Ex- extraordinarily paranoid about the West, um, and it, once they realize that you're a friend, uh, then uh, they immediately let down a lot of their guard and admit that all of their chicanery uh, and their corruption has been a defensive ploy. Right. And um, it's, 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 it's really, really disarming uh, and... Uh, uh, there, there. I, 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 I. China wasn't a place that I thought that I necessarily wanted to go, and and uh, boy, was I was I mistaken. It, it's like nothing that you get in any of the propagandistic uh, reports. It's it's a it's a great nation with wonderful human spirit. And I'm I'm not I I sound like a propagandist here for China in a way or a, somebody you know but but I, I'm talking about you know a really uh, deep uh, kind of uh, empathetic philosophical kind of of connection uh, that I that I felt there. I feel empathy with the fact that I know everybody has bowel movements, and so for that aspect, I always feel like you know that's the hidden ground is that unacknowledged um, reality. Yeah, yeah. Which makes me think, when you say Gertrude Stein and the removal of metaphor, the only thing that comes into my mind from Gertrude Stein, and I know nothing, is just that quote, a word is a word is a word. But that well, plays into yeah. the puns, and you could almost say that Joyce is kind of like the corpus callosum, and his metaphorical, analogical parallel would be the two kids talking to each other. So, yeah, that's true. Now let me add this, Biffle. Uh, in Stephen Hero, I think it is... Um, he said something a lot of his early aesthetic um, doctrine, and he said the, he quote, there is a quote McLuhan used to quote it where he said the common thing among all humans is the digestive system, and that's a major factor in Finning's wake. So bowel movements, digestive system is universal. Well, you know, autistic I, children um, become absolutely obsessively compulsively fixated on their digestive and bowel system. Who uh, did you say autistic do? Autistic. Yeah, that's the all. In other words, if you're fragmenting humanity and human scale and everything, 
the, the thing they'd be trying to preserve would be their digestive system. It's the that's only right. thing that's the last part of tactile holism. How does that <laughs> uh, right. fixation or obsession, uh, how does that sh- uh, show itself? Oh, you don't necessarily want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, why? Uh, well, no, it's, it's, it's you know, they... they uh, uh, you know, they probe themselves and... Uh, they don't have uh, any of the the um, social sensory taboos. And not none of the sensory taboos about any of that. You mean like and they're into doing enemas or something? Um, no, they're a, a little bit more direct about it. They're eating their feces, I guess. Oh, they'll do whatever they they want with it. Yeah, uh, it's a real problem. Uh, over. But it makes total sense. Well, see, if you follow what we're saying, we're explaining what Sherry Turkle and them refused to even notice. We can explain and give a framework. What Applying is another matter. It's like what Corinne said, Marshall. Marshall is right, but how do you apply it? <laughs> you know, And maybe yeah. part of it is just understanding. It, it gives you a bit of poise. Here, yeah, here's in, a, in mysticism, when they, when, uh, one of the formulas for the Philosopher's Stone, doesn't it involve taking feces and doing... Chemical well, we, we have a something. really ridiculous attitude towards feces anyway. You could eat feces like pudding if you wanted to, uh, but uh, uh, it, it really is a socialization uh, and culture, cultural uh, problem. It's part of the way we coordinate. It's the way they're mediating. Subject. Yeah. It's they, a mediation. They, they really seem to, to uh, work with their feces as if they were producing words. And we actually see in a lot of the um, manifestos by, uh, by, by the surrealists um, exact uh, poetic descriptions of exactly what uh, autistic uh, connections are uh, with their own fecal matter. Yeah, in War and Peace and Gold Village, McLuhan talks about a cardinal somebody, Michelou or Richelieu, going to Africa and the, the lepers. And he said, the discovery of the 20th century was uh, pain as a probe. Well, these autistic kids are probing all aspects of the chemical body as a probe. They they don't they can eat their own fingers quite often. They don't yeah. have um, uh, everything is there, there's no, no, nothing that we know of that is more traumatic in the sense of an ontological way of being than autism. Well, do they and, do they appear to be? Tremendously suffering, or are they sort of like this is what they're into, and it's it's kind of like not a problem. They're able to dissociate everything to such a great degree. Uh, they don't know how to associate. Things. They're miming the voiding of the android meme. They void what they do. Very very good way of describing it. Yeah. Let me read you a quote from McLuhan's second explorations phase, which was in the uh, University of Toronto's varsity graduate in the 60s. In 1968, he says, when the movies were new, they used literature as content. When TV was new, it used movies as content. The laser beam will use human dreams and the audience of the intellect right off the court decks. They will be scrubbed, but good. That's what you've been writing about. Isn't that absolutely incredible? I mean, that's the mark of genius right there. Yeah, 1968. Uh, in other words, the new written material will be the laser dreaming. Yeah. So have you heard of that quote before? 
Um, I'd heard that quote a long, long time ago, but I, I'm glad that you brought it up again. What yeah, is I'd, that? I'd, Could I'd you go you into that a little that more? Too. I'm not quite getting the essence of the metaphor here. This okay, you know how McLuhan said the, the, the art form or the content of a new environment is always the previous environment. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So when movies were new, they used literature as content. Mm-hmm. So what would TV would what would TV use as content? Oh, movies. Movies. So now he's saying he's talking about the hologram, which comes out in 1960. So he's thinking about it in 1968 or earlier, and he says the laser beam. What will be its content? Human dreams and the audience of the intellect. Yeah. Right off the court decks. Whatever what that, that means. What? what cor- how does he spell that? C-O-U-R-T-D-E-C-K-S. So it's sort of like uh, on a ship or, or a tennis court. You know, it's a, it's a pretty interesting phrase. I'm not sure. C-O-U-R-T. And then he says... Okay, sorry. Core, like the word C-O-R-T. No, court. C-O-U-R-T. C-O-U-R-T. Like a tennis court. Deck. D-E-C-K-S. And, and he says, and you know, he's got the deck of cards coming out right of that year, the Line newsletter. So then he says, they, meaning human dreams, what is the audience of the intellect? That's our own meta ability to erase what we're doing and move on to another experience, right? The audience of your own self. It's, all, it's like self-awareness. The audience of the intellect or self-awareness will be, will be uh, used right off the cortex. In other words, they're already flattened by the global theater, flattened on the court deck, spilled, and then that will be scooped up, and they will be scrubbed but good, which means the identity patterns from oneself will be scrubbed, or it will be just scrubbed off uh, the deck. It's very Crokerian, like Croker. The, the central nervous system is splayed across the uh, mediascape and then splattered and spilled on the cortex, and then they will be wiped up. I mean, that, that is what the Android meme or digital reality did. Yeah. Well, you know, because... You take in all this different stimulation, all this mixed media. If you, if you substitute mixed media for all the different types of food, and then what do you produce after? Obviously, something that is at once abhorrent yet necessary to live. In other words, shit. And people say, I'm the shit. I'm the shit. That's like a fatic. Like, instead of fatic, it's like a fat farm version of yeah, fatic. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's recontextualizing it, repurposing its uh, meaning. And, you know, like the Led Zeppelin song, sometimes words have new meaning and all that stuff. It's, again, it just seems all yeah. this stuff is just simultaneous puns where black is white, white is black, and the spectrum simulated. is Simulated. All that is simulated and played back, not to us as an audience, but to its own Android, Android mimic parts. So Which let me give you the... Influenced by let, us. Let me, throw out, let me just throw out some, 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 something to get some feedback on. Uh, Gurdjieff used to like to say that the brain needs to digest experience the way that the digestion needs to, your digestive tract needs to digest food and that the folds in the brain almost look like a digestive system. Does anybody want to respond to that? We need to figure out how the android meme... We need to figure out the digestive system of the android meme. Here it comes. I'm waiting to read this. This is is my essay on McLuhan, uh, Scott, called McLuhan and Holeopathic Quadrophenia. So I I have 104... McLuhan quotes, and then one Croker quote. But uh, in this section where I'm talking about the, the hologram Dex thing, I have just before it, I quote McLuhan, January 75. I think the instant replay is probably the most powerful experience that you will ever have in your lifetime. He's telling students at his brother's right. yeah, he's telling students at his brother's class at Sheridan School of Art and Design in January 75. We have a videotape of that class. 
And then I, I write, the stage for the second surprise, I was talking about the, the surprises of uh, McLuhan and the, and the uh, environment. The stage for the second surprise was set by the implementation of the new digital chip as a technological environment in tandem with the established instant replay environments to usher in an unprecedented collective effect. The reincarnation of the Polstergeist, that's McLuhan's word, Polstergeist, is the Android meme. Then I say, in short, the extensions of humanity had evolved to the point of actualizing their own drama of cognition. It thought like us. It intuited like us. This is the Android meme. And it anticipated like us. But we were still, and they put still in quotes, which McLuhan would do in Take Today, but we were still suspicious. It seemed to have no, it seemed to have no staying power. So humanity was left in the situation of having its ability to code and decode in real time Frustrated and paralyzed. It could only come up with a rearview mirror term for the Android means subtle collective actualization, and that term was virtual reality. Then I quote McLuhan from 1957. In fact, the next stage beyond subliminal projection has already occurred in the providing of TV for the blind by direct wire to the brain centers, bypassing external physical perception altogether. This latter step is slightly more contemporary than the crudities of subliminal projection. And for those who enjoy the thrills of moral alarm, here is a field indeed in which to cavort. Since there is nothing to prevent all of us being provided with cranial wall plugs, which would permit instruction in all subjects to occur endlessly during a physical sleep, which could be indefinitely prolonged. That's McClellan describing the Matrix movie 40 years before the movie. <laughs> Good grief. Then I juxtapose the 1968 quote, when the movies were new, they used literature as content. When TV was new, it used movies as content. The laser beam will use human dreams and the audience of the intellect right off the cortex. They will be scrubbed by good. Then I come in and I say, as the android meme, in its own anthropomorphic theater, its own anthropomorphic theater, as it began to extend and hypnotize itself, it enjoyed miming and simulating the natural human modes of cognition. Paranoia, schizophrenia, hysteria, panic, ecstasy, individual sensation, collective hope or phobia, national myth-making, and cultural norm-functioning. McLuhan did not live to see the android meme in action, but as an, effect, but as an effective empath, McLuhan is an empath, he mimed the effects before the causes showed up. To accomplish this, he intuited the fifth element, what I call the homeopathic cliché probe, by means of an understanding of the homeopathic effect, creating and maintaining memory and water, that's, that was uh, proven in, in 60 and 88. By means of an understanding of the homeopathic effect, that's creating and maintaining memory and water, which is a process of etherealization or doing more with less that is invisible and post-fusion, and projecting that effect as the consequences of the hologram when it becomes an environment that starts to evolve. This is me to explain the Android meme. So yes. then I have a quote from McLuhan in 1947 from an essay on uh, Blake and Hollywood. For all the conscious intellectual activity of an industrial society is directed to non-human ends. Its human dimensions are systematically distorted by every conscious resource, while the unconscious and commercially unutilized powers struggle dimly to restore balance and order by homeopathic means. Right. Yeah. And um, that was one, one idea that, that McLuhan and I thought uh, for a dissertation. It was regarding um, Ivy Compton Burnett's uh, uh, novels. She was an experimental novelist in England in the 30s, and her father was the person that brought uh, homeopathy uh, 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 to to England. Uh, England. Wow. Homeopathy. Uh, homeopathy or so, homeopathy? No, homeopathy. Yeah. Homeopathy. Yeah. 
Did you say holyopathy or ho- yeah. holyopathy is my term? Uh, I combine at Sorry, the end. I, I, I thought you said homeopathy. No, no, yeah, but no. Scott knows holyopathy, so he thought you said holyopathy, which uh, would have surprised him. That's my term. Holyopathic means this, the extreme invisibilization process that you described, the voiding of the void right. that goes on the andromeda. I take the global hologram that the satellite environment created in the 60s, and it's digitized and made tinier and tinier. So the hologram is, is made tiny in homeopathic dilution, so you put the two together and you get holyopathic cliché probes is what we've it. had. I get it. And that's, where, that's the scrubbing the cortex. Yeah. The, the cortex, scrubbing the, cor- the cortex, not exactly. the cortex. Oh, yeah, the cortex. That's a good point. <laughs> cortex. That's, Finne- that's Finneganese. That's Finneganese yeah, yeah. for the cortex. No, that's really important to look at McLuhan embedding puns in you know straight English words. Cortex. That could be cortex, uh, Scott. Yep, brilliant. Yep. Yeah, that, that's a good one. Well, I'm looking on net. The only thing I could find online was um, someone's trying to sell a court deck saloon, and it's a boat. It's from <laughs> 1981. It's from 1981, so that's a good, uh, good numerological aspect. But I mean, um, the only th- no, he was a he was a boater. He was a yachter and sailor. So court deck is something <laughs> in the in the boat world. Well, the only reference of any sense that I found when I entered it just in, you know, using um, Bing as the uh, as the default search engine was um, um, a, someone's trying to sell a court deck saloon. And it's like, this court, <laughs> this court deck saloon is a great weekender with 14 horsepower diesel Volvo sail drive, fridge, freezer, toilet, solar panel, Davits, all it, whole description, right? But, I mean, like a trailer. It's a, tra- it, it's tra- a boat. No, it's a yacht. It's oh, a, it's, it's a, a boat. It's a yacht, yeah. So you're right with uh, referencing McLuhan being an avid uh, canoeist on the Red River. Yeah, and you know, and Bucky Fuller uses the maritime versus the landlocked as a dialectic in his writings. But the court deck, you think of a deck of a, there's the famous Rodney whatever, not Dangerville. He 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 come out Ed Sullivan. He said he talked about how exciting his life was. He'd go down to the bus station and pretend he was leaving, or he was a court, <laughs> he was a deck hand on a submarine. <laughs> so I think of deck as submarine shipping stuff. Well, but you, court deck. You, yeah. You said you said court deck. I, I I said my thing about court deck being a yacht. You said uh, the thing about uh, McLuhan being an avid. Uh, you know he would use Boater. a canoe, and he would do that on the Assiniboine and Red River. And the first line of Finnegan's Wake is River Run. Yes, which and is, which is, and a, which is speaking, an alliteration. Yes, and you're speaking from Winnipeg right now. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a Winnipeg. He's from the Winnipeg School of Media College, Scott. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> Which was created by uh, Jim Patterson. So, so okay, we're roaring along here, one nano purse after after. <laughs> so, do we do we take? Zappa says that the, in his article in Life magazine in uh, in uh, summer of, in June '68, he's giving the history of rock and roll and what it was like as a kid growing up in the '50s. And he's now describing 1968. So he says, you're, you're in a disco, you're, you're dancing maniacally, having the, it's the greatest song, the greatest girl to dance with, you're dancing away. And if someone came up to you and said, Could a, if, consider a force like this being used by a society that needs all the friends it can get. Wait, what is, I don't know if he means the counterculture or does he mean regular society, but he's saying, would you allow, would you allow this force 
uh, if you thought it was being used for evil purposes, would you allow it to be turned off right now while you're in the throes of ecstatic dancing? That's how he ends his article. That's a media ecological question. That's descent into the maelstrom. Well, you're in the maelstrom, you're dancing to it and having a good, st- good time, and you don't think of the consequences of that. But I'm saying in order to survive the, through the vanishing point, you have to be aware of the situation to see the pattern in it while surviving it. So it, um, just to, to pause that. That's for, for individual survival. For the society to survive, well, Marshall recommended turning it off. And even that might have been a satirical thing. But it wouldn't have hurt, it wouldn't have hurt uh, if people saw his point if they turned off TV for six months. Well, if you got a hundredth monkey syndrome and a hundred people turned it off, then it could be, uh, you know, transmitted somehow. No, 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 no. The, the environment was, uh, if the majority of people are using it, then it's an environment affecting you. So, Scott, did he ever talk to you about that turning off the uh, TV scenario? Oh, yeah, often. Do you consider yeah. him serious about that, or was he just probing your re- response to the idea? Oh, he always followed it up with withdrawal symptoms and what they would be. And yeah, hangover. Uh, how they would give indication of what the television was like in the first place or whatever the electrical uh, environment was in the first place. Okay. Do you think, it seems to me that he's telling the Catholic Church that if you keep allowing this, this TV to happen, you will not have a ground for your church. Did he ever discuss that with you? Yes. Um, he discussed it in general. Uh, uh, other people heard that. I think that he talked about that a little bit with Nina Sutton as well. Right, right. In that in, that interview? Do you, are you talking about that interview? That yeah, we? I, I had an interesting relationship with, to that whole process. Uh, Nina Sutton, who later wrote a very successful uh, biography of Bettelheim, who, uh, of course, was involved with autistic children, mm-hmm. um, uh, she was uh, writing a book for the French explaining McLuhan to the French, and uh, she was uh, very, very frustrated with the process. She didn't get McLuhan at all, uh, but she needed somebody to redact uh, McLuhan's voice from the, the tapes. So uh, for uh, several months, um, I was the person she hired to uh, take uh, the tapes and redact and type it all up. And so for months, uh, I heard uh, for any number of hours a day, McLuhan going, uh, going on and on uh, verbally and uh, me uh, typing it up. Yeah, we just discovered that interview a couple months ago, and it's an incredible, deep uh, explanation, uh, explanation of him becoming a Catholic and, and how he went into the church to study the effects of prayer. Yeah, that's right. And you edited that. You you made those quotes. Well, I didn't edit it. I yeah. I just redacted it. Uh, and um, redacted means it. what? What's it mean well, to redact? Took it from uh, uh, from the auditory, the cassette, and typed it out. Oh, you typed it out. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So Nina Sutton. I didn't know who she was. So she she was didn't get McClune, but she produced a pretty good interview. Or McClune felt that she was someone to talk to, or say what he said in 1970. He was doing it strictly for money. Uh, you know, he needed money, and she was willing to give it, and so she did it, and she gave up the task, so it ended up being aborted, except it was changed at, at least into one interview, which was, um, she was, she was I, I really like Nina, she was a really uh, great person, but she uh, was not up to uh, McLuhan's uh, intellectual did, prowess. Did you ever meet anybody who understood McLuhan back then? 
the way you thought you understood them. Well, well, yeah, Sheila. Okay, Sheila. yes, Sheila. There's an interview with Sheila in 1968 when she and Wilford were 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 um, babysitting the coach house because it just arrived that that year while he was in Fordham. So they were the first there. And then there's the whole rumors they tried to stage a coup. But you, here is Sheila Watson, right at the beginning of uh, Women's Lib, talking about the computers, a global thermostat. She's, she's, there's not many people could even do that. Yet she's a woman doing it, and a novelist. It's incredible the, the detachment and the ability to put on Marshall's language that's shown in that interview. So yes, I would say she understood it. Well, she wrote her her dissertation, of course, on Wyndham Lewis, and, but she was really interested in Secret Gideon, Mechanization Takes Command, and uh, also with Moybridge and uh, with uh, his photographic studies yeah. of human movement and uh, all of that uh, that kind of thing. And her thesis may be the best thing on Lewis, and I sent it to Paul Edwards, who was the British professor expert on Wyndham Lewis and did the Yale coffee table book on, on Lewis in 2000. When, when, I, when he read it, you know, like a couple of years ago when I gave it to him, he said, wow, if we'd all had this in 1964-65 when it could have been published, we would have been light years ahead in understanding Lewis. Well, that's for sure. Um, the funny thing is, is that uh, the uh, English department did didn't even want to pass uh, the dissertation. Uh, so Sheila had tremendous problems uh, with it. And of course, so she's the first. There's Don. I don't know if Don Steele had those problems, but he, he she's one of the first people to deal with being a McLuhanite and getting in trouble academically because yeah, of it. Well, some of us really, really got in a lot of trouble from being uh, involved with McLuhan. And now, isn't it that it's, that's what her, history repeats itself. No one ever sees what art is really about. Here now, McLuhan is like he'll be made a saint in the Catholic Church at some point, and, and everybody thinks they understand him, but it's incredible. Forty years ago, like he was a, a criminal or something. It, yeah, yeah, that's right. He was a pariah. Because he described the present. You, you didn't even recognize how much of a pariah that he was because it... it I don't know. I just don't know how to explain. No, that. I know that there was that a social oblivionness, almost like a saint. He didn't care that he was a he still was running around energetically communicating. He didn't even notice anybody ostracizing you almost. And oh, you, I, he, you, I think he noticed. Oh, he noticed it, but he era, didn't era. act it out. You know, I remember in seventy five, seventy six, uh, after a Monday night seminar, he was talking to another student. I was standing by him, and he says. Do not mention me in your PhD. Do not bring him in. I just have a student right now who's in big shit over this. Didn't say the word shit. Big trouble. He was talking about you. It was me. Yeah. That's right. I, I didn't know at the time yeah. until I met you. But I was, I was told that I should take the University of Toronto uh, and the English department to court yeah. uh, legally by two secretaries of the English department because um, they were allowing McLuhan to teach McLuhan ideas, but if the students used any of the ideas or uh, the universe of discourse that he was talking about, they would be um, variantly attacked. Yeah. And that's, that's what happened to me. That's the obsolescence of the university's classroom, surrounded by the television and pop culture as classroom, and there was a war that was not pronounced there. And McLuhan was the interloper between the two worlds, and they would cancel him because he was not relevant to the university classroom from their defensive position. Yeah, it was it was ghastly. 
And so, you know what? I'm thinking that he said that this... What? Oh, I Am I echoing or did I hear... No, it's just an echo. Okay. Um, I heard... Uh, I'm thinking that he he, put through, he he saw how it went for you. He thought, well, maybe it's changed. You'll see if Scott gets away with it. And so then you have the oh, next the student. Thing is, the thing no, is, let me finish, Scott. So then the yeah. next, I overheard him saying, well, we threw, we threw uh, Scott to the wolves, and uh, I recommend to you that you don't use me. I mean, it didn't work. We're going to have to wait another 20 years. <laughs> you know, it was like that. That's right. And uh, he, he discouraged uh, people from working with them, and that was actually my point when I talked at the beginning of this uh, about uh, going to the window and him usually telling. And the thing was that I'd, I'd had a tremendously successful master's thesis uh, that was widely accepted by the university, and so we thought that everything was fine. And then it, it, it Is McLuhan in the master's? Well, McLuhan was my supervisor. That was the Gertrude Stein piece. It was accepted as worthy of PhDs in three different disciplines. But it was not seen. It was not quoting McLuhan. No, I didn't quote. McLuhan. Right, right. No. And so then, when you in your PhD, yeah, you well, then well, actually, it was in my it was in my uh, comprehensive uh, when I used uh, McLuhan's ideas when I was writing my comprehensive examinations. But not not throughout uh, all of them, but just in terms of the 18th century, uh, they they had really uh, a lot of difficulty with it. So you, that's why you're the last. They're not just dealing with McLuhan; they were dealing with me as an original thinker. Right, right. And uh, were there many graduate students who did PhDs besides you and John Don oh, Field? The ones that did, they didn't have very good. Uh, you know, there were. I haven't been able to get a list of them. But I've been told by one person that there were at least five PhD dissertations that were failed, and I I, I don't know about how many there were. But um, it appears to me that these professors would be looking for students with original ideas. Why did what was it that they how did how did they justify their their defense or their uh, their disgust of McLuhan? How they well, justify that? You have no idea. I, I could write a book on it. Um, it was so virulent. There were people thrown off of graduate um, examination committees as a result of it, and it created uh, huge problems for me in particular. Uh, You're talking about the scandal of your PhD itself. It was, yeah, it was huge. Was there anybody else doing it in that mid '70s period besides you, under McLuhan? No. So you what, what was what was there? there what what, what if the, they think that what you were doing was just base, based in 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 uh, delusion, or delusion, or <laughs> yeah. there was no ground to what you were doing? It was well, they couldn't make sense of it. They or? had they had intellectual positions uh, which they had to protect uh, in terms of their own articles on various people that I was writing about, and um, unknown. To, unknown to me when I asked the questions on the exam is that I would uh, totally uh, obliterate uh, uh, another uh, professor's uh, whole scholastic background. You didn't and, know uh, you were doing that. I you didn't, didn't know, know that. I was doing it. And so if they had accepted my answer, it would have meant that they were annihilating their own career. Yeah. So, uh, and I didn't know I was doing it, of course. 
And uh, so McLuhan went on the warpath regarding it, and uh, that created even uh, even more problems. But uh, uh, it, it was it was. You mean McLuhan would defend you or not back down and be uh, diplomatic? McLuhan was fabulous. I mean, he really went to my my. Uh, and the the other thing which really kind of bothers me is um, that uh, there was uh, an effacement of that all of that history, which went on for a number of years, uh, and was very significant in all of the uh, subsequent work. Um, uh, for example, uh, there were many many letters that McLuhan shared with Sheila uh, Watson. Uh, which Sheila then sent to uh, Mehdi Molinaro and um, Corrine McLuhan uh, to edit into uh, the, the, the letters book. Letters. And uh, they, they were uh, not used. And in fact, uh, I am totally discredited what letters were used that refer to me are uh, disparaging. And uh, uh, and then they say that uh, they don't say that I was a graduate student of McLuhan's. They say I was a graduate student of Sheila Watson's, which I never was. <laughs> and um, that an example of my work was um, the first uh, article that I wrote uh, for uh, White Pelican, which was a very idiosyncratic and non-scholastic uh, piece of work, and it's not an indication at all of my. Of your I, 70s work. I, of my 70s work. And so you're, you're part of the Don Thiel School, the exile school, which is Don Thiel, myself, and, and uh, these people. You're, so you, you did not maintain a friendship with Corinne? Um, I didn't have a, a, a relationship with Corinne, but there was a big problem. in When my master's thesis was accepted so, so well, um, uh, McLuhan wanted me to become his stand-in lecturer internationally. And so he sent me to Mady Molinaro uh, to to actually establish that. And when I talked to Mady about it, she got very upset. I was at her house, and she phoned McLuhan, and they had a, 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 a on the telephone. I heard heard it going on, uh, and uh, they had a, a long fight <laughs> about whether or not uh, I would be uh, made uh, an international uh, stand-in lecturer. And uh, it ended up that that, uh, Mady, or that McLuhan capitulated to Mady, and I wasn't. But the real issue there was um, that that uh, this was something that they wanted Eric to Yeah, do. Eric is the ground here. I can see yeah, that coming. Can you think of a specific example where you were undermining the premise of another uh, professor? And what but wait, let's finish his story here about Eric as the ground. Yeah. Uh, the mother was loyal to Eric, and Marshall wasn't necessarily loyal, so to speak. But it, it wasn't just that. It was that my thought was moving into the later McLuhan, which was untenable to Corrine and her Catholicism, and uh, to also the points of view that were being perpetrated of uh, McLuhan's uh, scholarship. By yeah, Mady was a Catholic, too. Uh, and uh, that's right. So they were having problems with that. And I, had, I have no, uh, no war with, with Eric. I, I liked Eric quite a good deal. Um, but um, but there was this this other this tension that Marshall saw that you could stand in and show the real '70s work that he was doing. That's right. What was Eric's? Uh, did Eric have at least the wherewithal to to be empathetic to his father's feelings regarding that? 
Eric was really kept out of that. Uh, That's what I figured. As a matter of fact, this this uh, the fact of me going to Medi Malinara and doing that uh, was what uh, brought it brought it out. Before then, you know, I didn't know this. It had been something that McLuhan was keeping. Um, I wouldn't say on the sly, but you know, to himself. Right, and and Eric found out about it that time. Well, he, I don't know exactly what Eric ever ever found out or right. or, or what he didn't. And my relationship with Eric has always remained uh, remained good. Cordial. Yeah. I wouldn't see yeah. him being upset because it furthered the cause of, of what Marshall was going for. Well, no, that could be. Uh, uh, Scott has serious disagreements with the way Eric presents McLuhanism. Well, I yeah, mean, you got to have contrast in order to come exactly. to insight. Wait, wait, wait. wait. What did you say, Scott? Well, you can actually see where Eric... Um, uh, moves away from McLuhan's thought, it loses its transparency, yeah. and it becomes problematic. It becomes pithy and knotted and paradoxical in ways that McLuhan uh, didn't. And so you can go through uh, the laws of the media or any of them, and you can see exactly where Eric is is putting in his his two best. That's where so some of the they collaborated uh, on the laws of media. Well, they did at first, but this was just really a. a but Eric wrote it, edited it later after Marshall died. The laws of media you get is Eric edited, and there were certain I can't remember his name right now. There were several knowledgeable Toronto critics, older guys who knew McLuhan, and they gave that book bad reviews because they said this ain't Marshall. They didn't probably couldn't define it, but they knew it. They felt it. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and I, I I I agree with that. But I'm really glad that the book got put out. I'm really glad that Eric did it. I think that uh, Eric uh, made a great deal of peace with McLuhan and McLuhan with Eric on spiritual levels regarding it. Uh, so I I'm for it. I'm pro it, and uh, I I think that in many ways it's a, a very strong strong uh, piece of work. Right um, for 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 people who have know nothing about nothing about the uh, intricate issues. The, the ones who don't know there are 50 kinds of snow, it's good that they find out there's snow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, maybe it's a last-ditch attempt for Eric to kind of try and explain it to the, you know, the, the, the university, which obviously never understood what McLuhan was going for, and that's why he wrote it in such maybe POB terms, literate terms, was just as a one last-ditch, although doomed attempt to try and show to the literate Professors that always Bipple, re- rejected him. Bipple, think of Marsha McLuhan as Reinhard Galen or even Hitler broadcasting on the campus, and it's such a de- decentralized society, and information per se is obsolete because it's become a manipulative society that a guy could be a McLuhan and right in the middle of it and be ignored, even though actually it was like a Hitlerite program. We're going to shut down this environment, TV, because it's necessary, even though you people can't see it. That look at McClellan is that extreme, and well, yet in the infrared society he can be ignored. Or Gandhi against. Or Gandhi against. You get what against, I'm saying, Scott? Yeah, no, no, no. I get what you're saying. Gandhi against the British as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very so, good. And, and Gandhi was not adequate to the situation. Marshall wrote about that. Well, Gandhi I'm just saying have, no. figuratively. Figuratively. Yeah, yeah. No metaphor. So you like that metaphor, Scott? Gandhi yeah. Hitler, he's Gandhi Hitler, <laughs> ranting away, confronting professors on the, on the walkway every day, a, a, a nuisance to everybody, having himself photographed in every department. The guy was a loose cannon, wouldn't you say, Scott? <laughs> yeah, 
yeah. As an artist, as an artist. I've enjoyed that role to, to a large degree. Yeah. Do you know that line, Scott, he writes in some criticism in the 40s? He said, the artist today, and this is after he's written the, the Southern Quality, I think that's the essay, in 1945, and you referred to this in your quote two, three hours ago, uh, the same idea. He said, the atomic bomb is a big threat on artistic egos. They're not going to be able to deal with the fact you can't have a cause anymore, and it's becoming a programmed society. He writes that in the 40s. Yeah, well, this is what I wanted to point in the direction of. There's another big elephant in the room, and that's the fact that McLuhan seemed to be certifying uh, communism in the movement of... So he's he's seen really, really left of left. Of course, he doesn't mean communism in exactly the way that they understand no. it. And he also talked about how communism was going to fail. In other words, he saw you know the fall of the Berlin Wall and all of that and the fall of... Of Russia. Yeah. Another, no. thing, another thing, just to end this, because it's 11 11 here. <laughs> oh, you're going for the 22 factor, eh? 11 11, yeah. okay. That's yeah. acceptable way to end. McLuhan said on a number of occasions that the next major problem spot uh, for the globe was going to be Japan. Mm. And, uh, and uh, so uh, I, I think that that he, he was thinking about it in all of the multidimensional ways that uh, w- that you can look at that. Yeah, yeah. In other words, he was perfectly aware that it was a volcanic island that had the potential of disappearing into the sea, like Atlantis. Right, and also um, he was might have picked up, because he had a lot of corporate espionage people feeding him information. Frank Zingroni goes does the history on the scandal of how Sony ripped off this or that back in the 70s. He might have intuited uh, that's the, the watergating of uh, corporate Sony life in there. I don't know, but it's what comes to me because Frank talks about this. Um, the other he quote... He talked about it much more seriously, and that's why I really perked up my ears at it. Uh, like, you know, like, like uh, it was uh, an apocalyptic-like scenario. Uh, and I'm maybe exaggerating a little bit, uh, but... Uh, okay, two, it, two points uh, for you to carry with you. He, so he writes in the 40s, the artist today, and this is in some article, some critical article, he says, the artist today must infiltrate decent society. He puts decent in quotes. He knew that the, the, the running around the streets like the Beatles were going to do and trying to get little crumbs in that was not was not the real position for the artist to work. The artist had to go into corporate society and then, as he says in his letter to Ezra Pound, create a distraction on the sidelines to uh, needle the somnambulist and distract the triggerman. So he, he, he infiltrated university life, and Hugh Kenner thanks him for telling him to get a Ph.D., because back then it didn't seem so obvious, but that allowed Kenner to survive in what he was doing. And the other point... Um, I was on the uh, World Trade Center on July 4th, 1976, the one with the TV broadcasting needle, uh, and I'm standing there with Carolyn looking at the tall ships come in, and over the broadcast uh, is um, CBS or somebody interviewing prominent Americans. All of a sudden, I hear McLuhan's voice. And McLuhan's being interviewed, and they're saying, what do you say for the next 100 years, next 200 years? What happens to America? He says, one word, Apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah, God. 
Well, Bob, I've got to go. This has been a grand and great thing. Thank you, uh, everybody, for paying any attention whatsoever. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, Scott, it was great. It was great. I, I hope I, I can keep bringing you back in, but sometime I'm going to have to bring another person in. But uh, this is just to be, I hope you'll keep coming back, Scott. Well, yeah. Yeah, we're just starting this workshop. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, I'll have to work really hard to keep up, but, you know. Uh, no, 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 we're not going anywhere, Scott, so uh, <laughs> that's why it's easy to keep up. Just just keep those probes coming. Do, do email me, and uh, I promise that I won't create a splinter group, Bob. <laughs> no, go ahead. We welcome that. I'll be I'll be in the splinter group, too. <laughs> well, you are, yeah, 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 you're the splint. Yes, <laughs> I'm the corpus callosum. In the interval. Uh, thank you guys so much. Oh, yeah, it was awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, that's Carolyn. Is that Carolyn saying thank you? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Scott. That was fabulous. Oh, great. Night, night. Good night. Good night. See ya. Okay, guys, now that Scott's gone, we can get the real work done. Where do we start? Okay, well, I'm at work, right, but I just want to say uh, four things real quick. Um, Zingroni mentioned that the guy that put McLuhan in the advertising world, um, what was his name again? Howard Gossage. His partner wrote that book's Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. Yeah, Jerry, Jerry Mander. He was a, an employee, a young kid employee in Gossage's office in the 60s. So that that's my, you know that's kind of interesting that that even you know what I mean a kid you know that that would maybe be a circulating idea, and then Gerald O'Grady. But listen, listen, uh, Bippo. Here's what yeah. you don't know. Okay. When, when four arguments came out, McLuhan said the book was disgusting. See, this <laughs> is how, these kind of stories help you understand the multi-level approach of McLuhan. Here's Jerry Mander hanging around uh, his boss, Gossage, as Gossage makes McLuhan famous, picks up on a lot of this stuff, and then 10 years later writes a book. I don't know if he thought Marshall was for it, but it was definitely influenced by Marshall. He would have been shocked. And I told Jerry Mander that in the mid-90s in New York City. I had a chance to meet him. And I don't recall his reaction. I think he just was puzzled by it. But I told him that Marshall thought the book was disgusting. So why does Marshall say that? You see, that's something to explore. Well, I go to sometimes I go to big blockbuster movies just to confirm that they're shitty. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, no, no, I, that's got nothing to do with this issue. Okay, Here's McLuhan. Uh, if you think TV is all bad and should be eliminated, no, there's incredible services to television that Marshall writes about. It's just you can't have too much TV constantly because it wrecks all the previous environments, and there's services okay. in the previous environments. Yeah. So you modulate them. Okay, I, 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 I agree with that. I, um, and okay, so the next thing was that uh, Gerald O'Grady mentioned that um, when he first met McLuhan, uh, Northrop Fry, he asked Northrop Fry, quite honestly, what's your opinion of him? And I'm looking at Northrop Fry as representing, you know, the whole Toronto University yeah. school people. And he yeah. said, I like him, but you talk to him, and 95% of what he say, says is new. And it's possible. And then you come to them the next day, and it's another 95%. That's so, right. You couldn't so, keep up with them. So they can't, they, yeah, they can't keep up. And that's, like, um, that's why they can't endorse students of his writing about his ideas, because that's like when the first light bulb came out, it never went out. 
well, so that's true. Yeah, they do that with any new ideas, though. I mean, that pattern is is true with all new yeah. ideas. I mean, I'm yeah, but Northrop Fry, uh, Carol, was known for a new idea. He had established archetypal criticism based on, I guess, Jung. So he was a new idea. Right. But he said he's that's a great story that O'Grady tells. A very important story. I think it helped Bruce Powell and his understanding of the dialogue between Fry and McLuhan. Fry liked McLuhan. Fry yeah. appreciated McLuhan. But as more of the methodical bureaucrat, he recognized that this guy was a loose cannon on the campus, and you, you couldn't be listening to him. You couldn't get your work done. But okay. McLuhan didn't yeah. care that they thought that. He kept doing it. He was an anti-environment right on the campus. He and infiltrated you, decent society. And you look at all the, all the allies McLuhan had, the Scott was told by two secretaries, and I'm not going to make any presumptions, but I'm going to actually make a presumption, that they're probably both female. Then you have that Nina woman who wanted to do the interview but couldn't, and then you have Sheila Watson. So it's like he doesn't have a legislative ally because of the uh, bias of that whole patriot, whatever, article bias. Yeah, Mar- yeah. Marshall wasn't limited to being a, a man. Well, naturally, women understood him because they're smarter anyways, because no, they've got they more simultaneous him. biological no, no. obligations. No, no, no. The women don't understand him. Male or female, that's not the level of understanding. It, it takes, I don't know what kind of mutant to understand McClune, because it's a threat to everything of yourself, male or female, uh, to understand McLuhan. I mean, when people worry about neuromancer and the implications of cyberspace and Gibson stuff, those are issues Marshall was dealing with in the 40s. Yeah, and, and look at cyberspace. And now the kids, though, don't have a problem with cyberspace because it's so tiny. It doesn't women, seem to interrupt them. It just seems women are, are more naturally predisposed, and I, I'm not being to what to what well, I'll, I'll, to, I'll, I'll, I'll to not being you. left hemisphere to not being left hemisphere That's to not being left hemisphere. It's true. Yeah, just just and he was both hemispheres, uh, Bipple. Both hemispheres. Oh, I know. Both, I know. All both hemispheres. Yeah, we are all, all both. I'm just saying, women just seem to be better at dealing with. Uh, Tactility. No, that's a good... Now, listen, Carol. We may be all the hemispheres, but our language, our unconscious language, yeah. betrays our bias that we're unconscious of, that we're male or female left hemisphere in America. Right, right. Well, the silent treatment, the, the planet, birth control right. pill. These are all, uh, Bob, you know, those things. Bob, we're left hemisphere on the planet. I mean, it's not 400 years. Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. left hemisphere is a minority... Uh, brain thing on the planet. America is the only culture that goes out to be alone, goes home to be social. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one percent. The rest that of the runs. world is goes out to be social. It's right hemisphere. And these terms are puny compared to where we are now. We don't even recommend using them. They're so stupid. Because this time, what the chemical body brain, the four body model goes way beyond figuring out things based on the biological chemical body. We got new, weird, anamorphic landscapes that are happening. So what are you? Are you a TV body person or a chip body person? You know, that's the way you do it. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's all simultaneous, right? It's like, a, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a Joycean recombination that's probably a, you know, um, phonetic automatopoeia of the actual word that it's retrieving as some type of art form that's it's just obsolesced. Okay, last yeah, point, my, i got to go. Meister uh, Eichhardt, listen to this, Meister yeah. Eichhardt, he liked that 13th century quote, only the hand that erases writes the true thing. <laughs> well, I was going to repeat what I was about to say. Anyways. Yeah, um, let me repeat what I was about to say, yes. Okay, the, you know how you say the Android meme? Um, when, do you, when do you use, Bob, the phrase torrent of images? Torrent of images, that's the uh, TV landscape. 
in the 50s and 60s. There's no torrent of images now because everybody has a digital wall and don't notice it. They just live in their own little tube. Hmm. We don't have information overload today in the chip body landscape. We do when you engage the old TV landscape. But there is no information overload today. That's what's wrong with the media quality scholars. They're still thinking that there's media overload. These kids don't have information overload. They got whatever they want. Yeah. On human, on digital scale, nano scale. They uh, they unconsciously empathize with uh, the non-physical. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, there was an autistic guy named Bram Cohn. He's a functioning individual. He created the protocol called BitTorrent, and that's a very popular uh, way that yeah. people swap files. And the way it works is rather than how Napster worked and, and things work, you don't go in a queue and wait your turn. Everybody's getting off everybody all the time, and yeah. the infor- the information of the file. Is, is, a, is coming in completely out of order. However, the only formal, formal, formal thing that's known is the size of the file. So this info comes in and how it's rooted is based on your request. And when it knows that it's like full, then it reorganizes it and you have your file. But uh, there's a lot okay, in that here's idea. Okay, here's a thought. Your idea of the Napsterization of a culture is more what Marshall says in his review of uh, Naked Lunch in 64, everybody is piggybacking on each other's digestive system. That's yeah. Napsterization. The universe is orgasm or whatever. Uh, the, the, the biological universe had an orgasm in the late 19th century. So he knew the very thing that Darwin analyzed was gone because the new nature was radio, movies, and cars, and then television. That was a new evolutionary environment. Try to tell that to a scientist, to a, to a Darwinist. Or to, to Dawkins arguing against the religious fundamentalists, you know, being a Darwinian. See, th- these are 19th century issues. Exactly. But, the, but what, the piggybacking on each other is what you're saying BitTorrent is. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's filling up an invisible but defined idea. And, 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 and once it gets filled, that's when it's visible. Yeah, and and so um, and then another void's created. This is what uh, Scott was writing about. Well, yeah, then you, the, the the void is your what? What are you curious for next? You know, what yeah. train of thought can you satisfy next? A fluctuating proprioceptive kaleidoscope, <laughs> an energized kaleidoscope, ever ever shifting, and which is what Finnegan's Wake is. Yeah, and, well, and you yeah. can make it happen at different rates. Up and down spirals, you know, baroque spirals. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. I I I. Like a, okay, well, I gotta go, but I, I'm gonna listen to it, and it's awesome. And I'll see you next Monday. Take yeah, care. this was a good show today. Yeah, thanks. So, Carol, have you been here the whole time? Most of it. I got on around eight. I've got to watch my minutes on my phone. Yeah. You know, what What happens on a landline? Do you pay for this? Is it a long distance? No, it should be call? free, but it, it depends on what your subscription is. Some people have subscriptions where they can't make more than local call, but yeah, just try oh, no, it. I can, yeah, I, I've got a landline here that I could uh, use. That I think that's free. Time. I think it should be yeah, free. Okay. All right. I just want. I didn't want to, ch- you know, ring it up. To yeah. Don't bring up these control. mundane things about money and uh, <laughs> and cost. And just right, jump right, in. Sorry. Right. Use right, ESP. Right. Use ESP. Right, so right. so what is it? Where we're at? We got Scott Norris still here. Yeah, I'm here. Is did Michelle Mose come in? I guess not. Is Andrew still here? Bob, you're the only one that can stay on for five hours. There's a, there's a, I don't remember how, but I remember back when I was participating in the tailgates, there's a couple 
digits you can push on your phone. It'll tell you exactly how many people are on. Right, star two. Okay. Uh, I can't, well, maybe I can do, do it now that Scott's gone. I'll just do it. Oh, did somebody do something there? Yeah, no, I just tried did. to do it, but it didn't work. Okay, let me try it. No, maybe it's because Carolyn's on the line. I can't. I can't have anybody. Okay, that might be. Who's that? That might be Ion. Oh no! Now you've said it. <laughs> well, we're not going to go too long. I don't think. No. If it's just a. Uh, hey, Scott. I haven't had a chance to talk to you much uh, lately, but we have you in mind, and glad you showed up. And and have you listened to all the archives, Scott, of all previous five moms? Yeah, well, I'm uh, part partway through last week's, which I'm finding to be really good. Yeah, Andrew Crystal says it's epic. It, that's an epic performance. That it one. It is. Yeah, I, I love the the uh, women's participation. Sheila and Car- uh, Carolyn. And Sue. Your name? Sheila, Sue, and Ginny. Yes. Yeah, and Carol. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're they bring it down to a more practical level where. Um, uh, well, no, they just contribute their experience. Yeah, but their experience, but they're not coming at it from an esoteric intellectual level. No, they're just describing their experience. You could yeah. say women are women are experiential, express experience, and men are abstract and speculative. Yeah, we're right. watching the kids, and we're watching the kids like you know live it, live the you know what he's talking about. You know, yeah, because it's sort of your responsibility. Right. Remember what McLuhan said in the early '70s that. Uh, men will move. What will men do? They will move into surveillance. That's discarnate, you know, wiretapping in all fields of the corporate and government life. And what will women do? They'll take over the old establishments, the old domestic nurturing, you know, government, uh, education. <laughs> They'll do all the obsolete bureaucratic stuff. And that is sort of an updating of the female cyborg nurturing the kids, which is supposedly the women's role, right? And the men are out foraging for food, but they're foraging for information uh, called surveillance. Right, and then uh, and, and and they and they end up at you know like you've mentioned a couple of times the end of burn after reading. So what have we learned, Palmer? <laughs> Can you do that? Have you got that memorized, Scott? No, I don't have it memorized. The guy, okay, they they kind of resolved it. So uh, these are the CIA guys, the surveillers, and they go. So what did we learn, Palmer? I don't know. And Palmer's an obsequious guy. He doesn't want to upset his boss. He says, I don't know, sir. And then he says, did we learn it? Did we learn anything? Uh, I don't know, sir. And then he says, well, maybe we learned not to do it again. And, and Palmer says, yeah, that, that's, that's a good pattern. Yeah, that's right. And then, then, then the other guy says, but what the fuck did we do? <laughs> and then he shakes his head. He just shakes his head, and that's the end of the movie as he closes the file. It is really a great archetypal scene of people in the last 30 years. Yeah. Bob, last week you brought up this thing at the very end of the conversation, and you said we'll talk about that next week, and you said something about McLuhan saying something about his fallacy. Oh, yeah, my whole fallacy is wrong. What could that mean? Right. right. Well, um, first of all, it's a verbal statement. It's made by his mouth. And, and, you know, Scott Taylor's book is The Dismantled Mouth, I think, something like that. So the mouth, the verbal logocentric medium is obsolete. McLuhan knows that. And so whatever he says, 
is incomplete, a flaw, and not getting at the situation. He used to quote T.S. Eliot's poem, Sweeney Agonistes, where a character says to the other one, I need to use words when I talk to you. So, okay, so everybody's arguing over what McClune said, and he knows what he said, whether it's right, wrong, perceptive, is is verbally an inadequate medium to deal with the situation. So what he actually said is that no philosopher king, nobody super wise in wisdom, like was marketed as all those gurus saying wise things, all of speech was obsolete. The only way to effectively do modern mediacology and really speak the truth was to turn off the TV environment. That was the only true thing to say, and it was a collective gesture of unplugging the electric circuits. So that was true. So anything less than anything used by the mouth is a fallacy, is limited. And so he says to the guy, you think my whole fallacy is wrong. He's saying, sir, you don't know that speech is obsolete, and anything you express verbally is obsolete. But within the, the, the knowing that speech is obsolete and it's a fallacy, someone says something like McLuhan says, it is maybe half right. And he used to say a half-truth is too much for people. So a half-truth is okay. So if you know that verbality is a limited medium, you can emphasize a half-truth, that the medium is the message and not the complementary part, the user is the content. And he writes about that in Take Today. He says, I left out the, sub- the, uh, the person's subjective response to media because I wanted to exaggerate the formal dynamic of the medium as the message. But he's saying that was only half the story. But it was okay to lie. He has in cliched archetype a chapter called Art as Lie. And art is as a lie is saying stuff as if it's true because he said none of the other experts will pretend, even pretend to know. He pretended to know what was going on for verbal consumption, said the stuff, but would admit that it was limited. And uh, at, it was, began as a fallacy, but it was the best fallacy around. Right. right. I was, yeah, I just I kind of thought oh, that. Oh, excuse me for interrupting. Yeah, I've got to get going. Great. All right. Uh, you too. Bye. Yeah. So you got, hey, yeah. Scott, you, you, you've heard that explanation of the whole fallacy wrong for me before, right? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, so it makes sense what I'm saying, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, it was probably... No, I'm asking Scott. Does it make sense? Oh, yeah. Okay, you just heard before. So, Scott, thanks for uh, whatever you've been emailing me, all the different little tips. For sure. Send me some new movies. I now have access to uh, new movies thanks to James in Australia, so I got to see Limitless last night. Yeah, yeah, what'd you think? Uh... Most obviously about uh, RNA drops. It's about us. And um, you know, I, uh, I liked the movie. Uh, I also liked Ion's uh, critique. Somebody asked him about it on. Uh, right he now, he said that uh, the problem is they use the mind. Now Brian said that's not what is said in the movie, but he recognized that Ion was talking to anonymous nobody or whatever out in the audience. And therefore, you give a general principle. But technically, that was not what it was about. But Brian recognizes Ayn was addressing that questioner. Where that questioner was at, he would have well, said a different was, thing to Brian. It was about, it was about increasing the, your brain's capacity as information processing so that you could you know, pick better stocks and put together better business deals and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, hyper, what everybody does, hyper cognitive thrill of pattern recognition. This guy could just do it faster. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that is maybe not just the mind. That's a whole environmental response with your yeah, body. Well, yeah, because at the end of the movie, he breaks through to, you know, I suppose... You a poise of uh, understanding quadrophenia or understanding a, well, a position of could, detachment. Yeah, I suppose you could use the cliche of coming, coming into his power. He all of a sudden knew, he just, he, <laughs> he knew 
No, he came into the power of not being embedded in that technology, Scott. He didn't even need to analyze anymore. He just knew. No, no. He says he learned to tweak and modulate it and not even use it some of the times. In other words, he was not embedded in that new technology. He had developed an imaginary detachment from it. That's a media yoga, paramedia yoga stance. Yeah. So it actually was an excellent ending on the McLuhanist level. Yeah. It was interesting to me that uh, people almost got killed by this stuff uh, in, in, on, in, on the road to, you know, finally having a breakthrough to where you become senior to it. Well, some of the effects people are getting from RNA uh, threatens their percept or uh, puts them through some intensities. Yeah. There's all kinds of intensities that the people get from the RNA drops. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they're not, they're not going to die from it, but they... They can't take the ecstasy of it sometimes, and it makes all kinds of weird hallucinations. So uh, that's where that movie's accurate. It could wipe you out, depending on your capacity to absorb uh, and willing accept the new dimension it'll move you into. Have you ever guys talked about, or can you talk about, what the source of these drops is? Yeah. No, it's not not talked about, and uh, it remains to be a mystery. It's not on the website either. When you look at the web, you know his website, there's no information on what's in them. I mean, I'm surprised. No, no, that's right. Oh well, on the bottle, on the bottle, it says something. It does. Yeah, but you can you can ask Matthew, and Matthew says he got it from Ion. He's had 42 readings with Ion. Oh my oh, okay. god. Okay, all right. Is I this the same Matthew? That. That... I don't know that. There's, is, are there two Matthews or is there one Matthew? Yeah, there's two. There's Matthew Rose, the guy who calls. Keeps, he's probably listening. He's a regular listener to this. Matthew Rose is obsessed with whether he's a part of Jesus' bloodline. There's that right, regular right. caller to cash flow. But Matthew Hurtado is not a regular caller. No. So what did you Matthew say, Carol? Hurtado he said, so that's what it's about. He said some phrase like that. So that's what it's yeah. about, or, no, I just wanted, I, I just didn't understand where they, they sort of seemed to come out of nowhere, and then there was no information about what they were made from. And but if you I, listen, it, it was well announced by Ion. He said many months ago, or when the Madison, Wisconsin riots were happening, he said there's going to be something a lot more powerful or dangerous coming out of Madison than, than these riots. He said that. You go back uh, six weeks ago or something, yeah, two months ago. Yeah, but what's that supposed to mean? The RNA drops? That, that, that's where Matthew is. Madison, He's talking about the RNA drops coming out of Madison, Wisconsin. That's where his store is. Right. So, Mar- so Ion embeds this stuff all the time. He said something, and two months later, you know that he was uh, telling you what you would know two months down the way. Right. So uh, I've been on the drops for three months, and here's a good story. Um, Carolyn hasn't been using the local our compound swimming pool for months. And she came home a couple weeks ago and said, Hey, Bob, I think these RNA drops are working. I haven't been to the pool in months. She said, I just went in, swam three times my laps that I normally did, and I'm not even tired. Wow. And I asked her today or yesterday, I said, Is that still happening? She said, Oh, yeah, I do three times. Now it's becoming regular to do the three times as much and not tired. And I have the same experience of my walking home to and from the beach, uh-huh. I am. I can. I could run for miles and not uh, not be tired. I might have well, sore legs because I don't run that much. What? It does sound interesting. I mean, but you know, I didn't realize that he had talked to Ion forty times. He had gotten the formula from because I'm thinking to myself, they're not talking about what's in these things, and yet they're telling everybody to buy them, and. 
I, I don't well, know. Well, he's, he's not even telling you to buy it. To buy. He's just saying, hey, this stuff, look what it's doing to me. He grew three quarters of an inch. He sits around in his underwear all day because he already had a store. The Internet business is booming on, on his other stuff. So he's right. sitting around not weightlifting. He's a regular jock guy, and his body is getting stronger and looking better just by right. taking the drops. That's right. one person's effect. Other people might have other effects. Right. I don't know. We, there's no claims to be made about it. Right, kind of be interesting if he did sort of start to get some info about what what different people were experiencing. Well, you do that. You go on a site, and uh, he has up in the right-hand corner other blogs, and that's Bart's story. Uh And we're talking about this as a new technology. That's why it's relevant to the McLuhan thing. Uh, uh, New new products or new technologies. I'm not trying to promote it. I'm saying don't buy it. Don't buy this stuff. You won't be able to take it. Uh, But there can be reverse psychology in that. Uh, he right. what's, Now, the site is pretty radical and crazy, and it was meant for ION-knowing people. People knew ION, but there will be a new site uh, around April 11th, which will be more sober. Okay. It might give okay. you more what you want. Right. No, I just, you know, I don't take anything. I don't know what it is. And, I mean, I love you guys. Oh, no, don't, no, no, you got to get rid of that. You know what I mean? you got to – if you knew what ION's saying on cash flow. Remember, ION is saying – well, Carol pointed out in a recent uh, chemtrail uh, – uh, cash flow. When she walks in the morning and sees the chemtrails, if she sees them, she starts breathing deeper. She wants to eat the chemtrails. And that's a knowing that comes from the Revelations rewrite stuff that you guys right. don't know about. Yeah, that's probably Carol's turning into a monster. Right. And Ion is saying that the radioactivity coming out of Japan is good. Bob, listen, I've read... Now, what is he... What? That's crazy talk. Wait, you think wait, you LaRouche think was not saying the queen pushes drugs? What about they'll say about ION? This guy advocates nuclear war so we can eat the radioactivity because their bodies are changing to make a new heaven and new earth. I've read that in the Bailey books, though. I read the same thing in the Bailey books that were written in the 1920s. What, did she, well, she wouldn't know about nuclear radiation, but how did she say no. it? No. Yeah, I remember that. You know about nuclear radiation. say that it was good for the the mineral right. kingdom needed it. Right. Exactly. No, no. Well, I, I don't want to round out. What did she say? It's he said, really, not her. And you said it better than I would say it, Scott. So you say that again, or Matthew, whoever we're talking to. It. Yeah, Scott. Scott. No, she she promoted the idea that the the mineral kingdom needed uh, nuclear radiation for its evolution. And, and does the mineral kingdom include human beings? Well, I don't know, but we include minerals. Well, that's wrong. What Ion says is the human being, as it becomes ascended, needs not the radiation. It's what the radiation does to H197, the isotope. Well, listen, I heard or read in those books basically what he's saying, that it's good for you. You know what I mean? Like the bottom line was, it's good for you. And I, I mean, I've, I've, re- I've seen it, that before. It's only good for you if you're ascending. If you're not ascending, it'll burn your flesh off. All right. Well, that's a good point to know. Yeah. It depends on where you're at. But it means changing your, your ideas of what you're vulnerable to. And to think, oh, I better find out what's in this. Ion makes fun of that. I better find out what the content is. No, no. You're going to have to say, you're going to have to take on the God nature of your body that it can't die. And if you think nothing can kill you, you're okay. You're not right. suicidal. Well, that, I mean, you know, that's, uh, you know, I love Ion dearly, but it's not like I'm 
sold on everything he says either. Do you know what I mean? It's like I love to listen to him. Well, that's it. It's not. Ion is not about what Ion says. You don't know what Ion says. He's so changeable, and I've listened to four thousand hours, so I know the changeableness of Ion that you don't even know about yet. So it's not what Ion says. It's the rapid production of bullshit. And the vibration and gong effect you get from that, that is the real ion environment. And ion, all these things, the Egyptian riots and the uh, Japanese earthquake and everything else, chaos is going on, is because ion says non-physical is showing up. So ion is the cause, the efficient causality of all this stuff that's happening. Now, that's what Ion claims. Whether you believe it or that or not, it's another issue. But right, that's how right. dramatic. Ion is not a voice coming through JW. It's an environment. You know that he deleted the, uh, the Sue Bone Sun song from recent cash flow and stuck in another one that's modulated. And Ion told me he modulated perfectly or made it beyond any editing capacities, if you listen to it, to show that it was not done by a human being. You know about that? Just go listen to the... The March 16th or 23rd show. It's the 16th in the archives, the third hour. Yeah, I, I, heard you, I heard you talking about it. I mean, you know, I didn't understand what it was. that. Right. We've, uh, we, we played a song by right. Brendan Crosscarry. Carol and I are talking about it. Carol loved the song. She knew the album. It's Sue, who was on last week's Sun. It's a great album. And then I, on later that day, went into the archives and put in a Vesco Goodman song, altered and vibrating on a weird level, and so that you don't hear the Brendan Coscarry song, but you hear Carol and I celebrating the Brendan Coscarry song, and it sounds like we're celebrating the Vestal song. But it doesn't make total sense. That's why if you didn't know what happened, you wouldn't know what was going on there if you were listening closely. Is that in the archives, or was that Yeah, yeah, it's the archives. And we, yeah, let, we could have got uh, uh, Bill to put back the Brennan Crosscarry, but we left it there so that on the March 23rd show we could demonstrate what had happened. Right. It's still there. I so these are environmental things. I just want to make, I just want to say one last thing that just, uh, uh, I thought of, which is that if we separated non-physical off from ourselves because we were in some kind of a dilemma, we couldn't figure it out, yeah. and it's coming back, that means it's a retrieval, Bob. Oh, exactly, probably and it's, all, it's probably, not only retrieval, it's going to flip into non-existence to the point we don't require it anymore. That's what eternity in the flesh means. You don't, you don't have non-physical. Non-physical was created by humans who didn't want to have eternity in the physical. It's a temporary environment, and the guff is being wiped out. Now, that's the most fantastic thing saying, you could ever I'm hear of. Saying, I think it's, it's interesting to me that it appears to be following the laws of media. Yes. No, no, no. That's why... Uh, or Ion... vice versa. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah, the, the, the media are following Ion. Did you hear that, Scott? Well, or vice... But it's always, an always, it's always an or vice versa situation. You can always flip whatever position you take into its opposite. Okay, so let's end the recording so we don't corrupt it. We, Ion drops in every tape and says one sentence, and that's it, so we don't want to have too much of this, so... All right, guys, I'm going to stop the recording, and then we can keep talking, Carol, but let me stop the recording before you-know-who corrupts it some more. Uh, So I have to press star nine, I think. Oh, i got to stop the the recording. Just a second. got to turn off the other phone. That's why it didn't work before. Okay, just a second. Okay.